John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc but the vote was 10 to 8 the chief he's got his hand up look no mr mcmurphy when the meeting was adjourned the vote was nine to nine Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to say that now. You're not going to say that now. You're going to pull that handhouse shit now with the vote. The chief just voted. It was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host in San Diego, California, voiceover artist. Um, and excited to be jumping back into this movie for the second part, Steve. There's, there's so much to be discussed about this, and I'm a little nervous. I'm actually a little bit afraid to discuss this um, movie because some of the feelings I have about the movie aren't the same as they were before. So I'm a little weird about it because I don't want people to think the outlaw's been domesticated, but I have a lot of feelings about this movie that are different than the way I've felt in the past. When you say before, do you mean like they've changed since our last recording or just no. the last time you've seen it? Since the last time we've seen it. And I think I, I think I, as I re-listened to our first part, cause we're recording after we dropped the first part, I, I felt that maybe I, I kind of didn't a hundred percent commit to my actual feelings on it. And I, 
wonder if I'll be able to do that as we talk about it today. I don't know. It's, it's so funny that you say that because, you know, sometimes when we do two parters, we record, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, we record one long session and divide it into two. And sometimes it's record part one. And a couple of days later, we do part two. Mm. This has been a while since we recorded part one. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I had a similar reaction, which I was like, mm. man, I, did I, did I really say what I felt at part one? Do I really, yeah. did I really commit to it? And then I was kind of nervous and when I got to really reread my notes really carefully, I don't know what, what it is about this movie, but it, it's, there's a lot here. Yes. It's very emotional. And it's also very ambiguous in a way, you know, a lot of ambiguity and ambiguity. And I almost tweeted this out and then I hesitated, you know, because to be honest with you, <laughs> Twitter now is a cesspool and it's scary to tweet any strong opinion. People just come after you, man. And yeah. I almost tweeted out today, um, to be honest with you, I care about Chief's story much more than McMurphy's story in the in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nests, because to me, McMurphy helps the Chief, for sure, to find oh, his yeah. voice, to find his strength. But also, he's an unreliable criminal who is not who doesn't take responsibility for his actions, and I don't want to see him break out and go succeed. Chief breaking out at the end, walking off into the distance... In my mind, I like to think that he went back to his people, went back to his place, found a good woman, settled down, and this was just a memory of his years from now, and he has wonderful children, and he learned how to come to terms with what happened to his father, how to come to terms with why he needed to put himself in a place like this, and and uh, found peace. And whereas McMurphy, I never felt like, I don't feel sympathy for McMurphy. Now, do I think it's extreme what they did to him at the end? Absolutely, and it shouldn't happen. But that being said, I think Chief is the one who I care about the most in the movie, you know, which so is weird because McMurphy was who I was gravitating to when I was younger, you know. Um, so first of all, you just answered a question that I was going to pose near the end of the show, which came from Paul sorry. Sevilla. No, nothing to be sorry about. Paul Paul asks, my other question oh. is, what do you think happens to Chief Bromden after he smashed the window? Did he spend the rest of his life free? My image in my mind is exactly what you just said. Yeah. yeah. Is that he, he does, you know, make it back to his people and. Mm-hmm. Can remember this as a, a a moment in his life and tell his grandkids and you know yeah yeah um yeah I I have the exact same feeling I it's interesting that you bring that up about the chief because as as I told you it's yeah. his story in the book the whole yeah. book is narrated by the chief and so yeah. there's I think even though his part is so much smaller in the movie yeah. Yeah. I think they nail it in a way to make us really feel his journey. They hit the big beats that they need to hit with him, and his performance fills in the rest, which right. I think is great. Yeah. Um. So, uh, let's just. Ju- I say we just jump back in. Yeah, let's do it. Sorry. Uh, where we had left off, <laughs> he'd failed to win the vote to to watch uh, the World Series, and then in this bizarre scene, McMurphy tries to lift that hydrotherapy console, which there's no way he can do it. And leaves the room saying, well, at least I tried, goddammit. Yeah. Strong and, Yeah. And then it's the next day, and the orderlies are listening to the World Series, and we are back in a group meeting. And this time, instead of Harding being the focus, the focus is on Billy. Did you tell the girl how you felt about her? Well, well, I went, went over to her house Sunday afternoon, and I brought 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 her some flowers. And 
I love that even though Billy's talking, hmm. we see Jack Nicholson and we see Nurse Ratchet are still so central to the way it's filmed. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can tell how stressed Billy is by the stutters, mm-hmm. you know, and right now he's really stuttering. And there's this crazy moment because he says, I said, I, I said, seal, Celia, will you marry me? And then all the guys in the room laugh. (laughs) And then Billy looks at the guys laughing at him. And then he laughs along with them laughing at him. (laughs) Is this, have you seen, have you seen this or felt this? I've been this. Yeah, sure. I mean, those are the things that you, you know, I was bu- as I've said before, I was bullied as a kid till I was 15. I was made to feel inadequate by the cooler kids till I was 15. And so laughing along with the people making fun of you or laughing at you, it's a defense mechanism. It's a way to kind of make sure they don't turn their ire onto you even more. And that's kind of what you see here in this moment oh you know it's either that or billy's not really understanding what they're laughing at so he's just as a as a as a impulse he just laughs along so he can be part of the group that's desire to feel like he's part of a community because he does normally always feel like he's the oddball out um i i totally agree with that and i want to dig deeper on it but but now i want to actually ask you the question what is the joke what are they laughing at Billy for in this moment? That he's, um, you know, immediately going to marriage and that he, you know, that, that he's, go- he's he's jumping too far ahead just because a girl, he likes a girl. Like he, he's not understanding there are levels to this. And even these guys who are a bit unstable understand at some level that there are levels to this, to, to the courting process or stages to the courting process that Billy is kind of ignoring here. And they're kind of making fun of him for being green about it, so to speak. You know, it's so funny. It's a totally small moment, but you, mm. the things you're saying is just making more come out for me because mm. the thing for me is I think you're exactly right. That is what they're laughing at. You're jumping the gun. Yeah. yeah. But that isn't necessarily what Billy thinks they're laughing at. Right. Because what he might be taking it as, and of course this is all speculation, but what he might be taking it as is imagine the ridiculousness of a loser like me thinking any girl would marry me. Maybe. Yeah. You know. It's totally possible. And and now to 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 the idea of uh, because this is weird thing if someone makes a joke about you in public and everyone laughs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you don't laugh and are offended or, yeah. or even if you just stay calm and don't laugh you are now an outsider mm-hmm. you have to laugh particularly with dudes this is definitely a thing and it happens with women too I'm sure but like you can't to not laugh or to get offended is to show weakness. So the only thing to do is to laugh at yourself and that shows strength. And I think that what's so weird that's happening with Billy is they're making fun of him in a way that's probably hurtful. Yeah. But he feels good being part of the group, being able to laugh at himself, you know? Yeah. And then (laughs) Nurse Ratchet. Your mother told me that you never told her about it. And the reaction from Billy at the word mother is huge. Well, it works on two levels, right? Because A, this woman being connected to her mom is kind of a overwhelming thing for Billy. But also having a woman emasculate you in front of men, in front of your yep. friends or your whatever you want to say, the people who are in this boat with you. It's also that there's also that 
instinctual primal feeling of embarrassment in that situation as well, as well as the mother son thing. You also had in the woman man thing, and that's certainly what's operating through him in in that moment. And it's a a nice foreshadowing for what we're going to get later when he threatens to tell she threatens to tell his mom about sleeping with a girl. Well, and I think all of that is true in in a normal mother son relationship. I'm not sure that this is a normal mother son no no relationship. It feels and, weird, yeah. Because she says, you know, she says, "Why didn't you tell her about it?" And now, Billy, the stutters have become so big he can't; he can no longer speak. Yeah, yeah. And then she asks, "Billy, wasn't that the first time you tried to commit suicide?" Yeah, this is great foreshadowing for what's coming. Yeah, it's so. This is the cruelty of Nurse Ratchet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the guise of like, oh, I'm trying to help you and I'm trying to support you. We're just, we're just, we're looking at your problems. It's like to bring up his suicide mm-hmm. in this way. I think her, she knows that mom is a weapon to control Billy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there, there's, it's so awful. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense or a thought of what the fuck is going on with Billy's mom? I don't think it's sexual, but I do think there are those relationships between mother and children, especially maybe during these times, even more so, where there's an unhealthy connection between mother and son. And especially when a mother has a weak son, there is this sense of preying on their sense of guilt and their sense of duty to her. And so they manipulate them. And at times it can be um, uh, malicious. Other times it's needy and desperate. But I think it's very much a control issue. So, um, and it could even be something like, I don't want you going out into the world because people are going to hurt you. Stay with me, stay with your mom, kind of like into the woods, you know, what she sings to her and stuff. And so I think that's what is operating uh, under the sur- surface here of everything. I don't think it's physical or sexual abuse. Yeah. I think it's, uh, but I do think it's psychological abuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's belittling him and controlling him and you know, massive amounts of guilt and disapproval and all sorts of stuff. And I also don't think there's a dad in the picture. No, absolutely not. In fact, there might've been at the beginning and left. And so Billy in essence becomes the male figure she gloms onto and manipulates and twists maybe to pay for what the dad did, or maybe because she has a desperate need to have a man around. And ladies and gentlemen, that does happen, you know, especially back then. Well, and that's why McMurphy becomes important. Yes. A strong male figure. Yeah. And everyone looks up when she brings up suicide. And then Cheswick goes, oh, my God. I think it's the, uh, I think Cheswick is upset at Billy's being opened up like this in front of the group, you know. Miss Ratched, I'd like to ask you a question, please. Go ahead. Okay. uh, You know, if... uh, Billy doesn't feel like uh, talking. I mean, uh, why are you pressing him? Why why can't we go on to some new business? Huh? And I wrote down, Cheswick's a fucking hero. <laughs> I really think he is in in this weird. I mean, he's the he's the most fragile person. Yes, but he stands up for Harding when everyone's attacking Harding. Now he's standing up for Billy when Billy is being exposed to the group. Right, and then he and now he changes the subject. He brings us back to the World Series. A baseball game. You know, and I've never been to a baseball game. And 
Well, I think I'd like to see one. And that'd be good therapy too, wouldn't it, Miss Ratchet? And of course, I think it would be good therapy. You know, maybe it's because of the way we think of things today, but like sometimes having a nice time is good therapy, you know? And uh, we have a, a new game today, I think, don't we, Mac? That's right, Jess. And we want a new vote on it, don't we? And Nurse Ratchet, with just knowing she holds all the cards, says, Would one more vote satisfy you, Mr. McMurphy? And once again, McMurphy puts his hand up. He's encouraging everyone else to put his hands up. And one by one, all of them do. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, what do you think? What changed them? Oh, well, look, it's a battle of wills. They're both wrong. This is what I came to, what I, what I prefaced maybe a little bit clearer earlier. I think they're both at fault for everything that happens in this movie. Both of them. Because McMurphy doesn't care about the individual nature of these people either. He cares as long as he can use them to get what he wants. He wants the World Series, so he goes person to person and yells at them and guilts them and berates them until they raise their hands. So what's that? There's no different to me than Nurse Ratchet um, berating them and belittling them uh, to get what she wants, which is their subservience. And so to me, this is where it becomes a battle of wills between them both. And neither one of them takes the actual care of the people into account when they're doing the things that they're doing. And so um, that's what I feel when I'm watching this scene. So, yes, he gets the right amount of votes. But how many, I mean, can you verify that they understand what they're voting for? I bet he can't. And then, but then she, she changes the game on him at the end, which is how it is in this society. Sometimes the people in charge will move the goalposts. So I get the symbolism of this moment, but I also think McMurphy is, you know, one of these guys that is not the most, I don't know, is the purest protagonist, I guess. Well, he is definitely not a pure protagonist. Mm. He is not a good guy, no. you know? I, I think if we you and I met McMurphy out at a bar one night, we would not want to hang out with McMurphy. I'd probably leave the bar. Yeah. I mean, and maybe as younger guys, we might have been more enthralled by him. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. Um, it, here, here's here's how I would put it. I, I have a slightly different interpretation from you. Sure. And this is and this is how I would put it is that I per, first of all, McMurphy's out for McMurphy. Mm -hmm. There's is that the difference I would say is that what he is doing, I actually think does have opportunities to help them. And we see that is that whereas what I see Nurse Ratchet doing is only cruel. I see no chance that it's going to help them at all. That's mm -hmm. the difference that I see. Okay. Um, uh, and the other thing I want to bring up is that I think they, the vote changes because he tried to move the water console. Because of oh, the horrible, okay. I think that's part of it. I think the horrible spot Ratchet puts Billy into part, mm -hmm. is part of what changes their vote. And I think Cheswick changes their vote. You know, all three of those things. And everyone raises their hands. All right. That's it. I only count nine votes, Mr. McMurphy. <laughs> he only counts nine. <laughs> only nine. It's a landslide. <laughs> there are 18 patients on this ward, Mr. McMurphy. Which she's known the whole time that she was going to, yeah. she had this in her back pocket. Yeah. And he, you know, and this is, it's just what you say. The society says, hey, if you play along with our rules, you're going to get what you want. And then you play along with your rules. Everyone shows up to vote. 
Everyone said, okay, we're going to get it. And no, you're not going to get it. But it's also because McMurphy's not smart enough. You've got to be one step ahead of society, which is not easy to do. No. If you really want to enact change. Our greatest leaders, greatest civil leaders, greatest uh, social leaders, people who've changed this country or changed the society have always thought one or two steps ahead of the people in power in order to counter uh, what they might do. So that's the difference. That's why McMurphy is so flawed here as someone trying to enact change in this movie. Yeah, because like this is why that, you know, idea of that, well, this is the institution of our society that we all live in Mm -hmm. and the power is all stacked against us. You know, Mm. it's so hard to make change. Um, and, and so now McMurphy's going to go out, try to get out the vote and he goes person by person to all of the, the guys. It's surprising me. He doesn't go to the chief first, except that that's the most dramatic choice. And in the midst of him trying to get all these people and then finally going over to the chief, trying to get chief Bromden raise his hand, nurse ratchet adjourns the meeting. Yep. And McMurphy fails to get the chief to raise his hand. He turns around frustrated. And then with him not looking, Chief Bromden raises his hand. Yeah. Chief! The Chief! Ah! Chief! Nurse Ratchet! Nurse Ratchet, look! Look! The Chief put his hand up! The Chief put his hand up! Look, he voted! He thinks he's won. Hmm. And the look from her through that window is scary. The Chief voted. Now, will you please turn the television set on? Mr. McMurphy... The meeting was adjourned and the vote was closed. But the vote was 10 to 8. The chief, he's got his hand up. Look. No, Mr. McMurphy. When the meeting was adjourned, the vote was 9 to 9. And you see the scariness of Jack Nicholson. Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to say that now. You're not going to say that now. You're going to pull that hen house shit now. When the vote, the chief just voted it was 10 to 9. Now, I want that television set turned on right now. That's what I'm saying to you. Both of them are scary in their own ways. Both of them. Her with authority, him with violence and anger and frustration and unresolved anger issues that will explode and cause harm to people. And so, like I said, it's just weird to watch this movie now because I can hear hear the common understanding of the movie on my shoulder going, but he's fighting for society. He's fighting against... A person who's abusing power. And I'm like, yeah, but look at him. He's not someone you want to have in any kind of sense of power or to give any kind of – because he's the kind of guy that if you give an inch, he's going to take a mile. So if she had given him the World Series, the next it's like, put on TV all day. Let me watch what I want to watch. Put on a whole series. Put on Netflix. Let me binge Stranger Things. Like it would never end. And so that's the other side of this thing. So these are the things that I was thinking about as I was watching the movie constantly because I know – what the common understanding of this movie is, but the other side of me found much more, not sympathy, but much more understanding in the situation and for ratchet and much more blame for McMurphy than I initially had when I was younger. So I hate nurse ratchet and I always (laughs) hate nurse ratchet. Fair enough. But I agree with you about McMurphy. And here's the thing. I have so many thoughts running through my head. It's interesting to me that this is Ken Kesey who forms the Merry Pranksters, which is one of the foundations of the hippie movement and the counterculture Mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. Because is that what frequently happens and, and, you know, examples from the French Revolution and Pol Pot and all these or or the Russian Revolution, all these places Mm -hmm. where there is an oppressive system and the oppressive system is terrible. 
Yes. And then we have all these ideals and the people with all the ideals overthrow the oppressive system and create a horrible nightmare of a fucking system. Right. Exactly. And I just suddenly went, can you imagine the world where McMurphy is in charge? Yes. Hell no. Hell no. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. McMurphy only cares about himself. He only cares about his own pleasure. And, 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 and if he can bring other people along and they have a good time too, that's great for McMurphy. Yeah. That's totally fine. But he is not altruistic at all. No, not in any way, shape, or form. Right. And the thing is, you know, you go back to the story of all those fights he got arrested for. Well, how, how many fights did he actually have that right. he didn't get arrested for? Yeah. My guess is it's probably 10 to 1. He and probably how many had 50 fights. Did he instigate Exactly. But we're we're handed the fact that he's this, you know, rebellious guy. Well, and we have this one case of this 15-year-old that he slept with and that yeah. he describes as totally eager. And does that story the truth? Yeah. You know, and no. how many other women are there? Yeah. You know? Right. Like, yeah, McMurphy's not a good guy. Yep. He finally storms away, closes the, the window, sits down in front of the turned off TV. You could see his reflection on the TV screen. And he sits there for a moment, and then you could see the wheels turn. He has a thought, and he says, Koufax kicks. He delivers. It's up the middle. It's a base hit. Richardson is rounding first. He's going for second. The ball's in the deep right center. Davidson over in the corner. Cut the ball off. Here comes the throw. Richardson is rounding first. He goes into second. He slides. He's in there. He's safe. And then he proceeds to narrate the World Series game out of his head. Yeah. So I want to point out that this is not improv and this is not in the script Mm. this is what this is jack nicholson might not look like he's a serious like actor who studies and works really really hard because it's so natural with his performance he does work really really hard he spent night after night after night going over who were the actual players on the team in that year's world series going over their stats and putting together in his head, the entire game and practiced it over and over and over again. So he could come in and look like he made all this up (laughs) and it is so rousing and it is so fun as one by one, the other patients come over and they just buy into this game and they start cheering along with him. It's a long play ball. And now they're having this moment. And of course, Nurse Ratchet watching the whole thing and seeing power taken away from her. It's an amazing sequence. Agreed. So one of the things that happens when you're working on a movie like this is sometimes people socially kind of fall into the characters that they have. And what that meant for this movie was there was the group Mm -hmm. and then there was Louise Fletcher. And Louise Fletcher continually, they're all living at the same place. They're all there together. And she's continually feeling ostracized and treated like the villain. And, you know, oh. yeah, I mean, because that's. I guess that's what you did in the 70s, right? You made people feel that way about it in a movie, I guess. Well, and I, I don't even know if it was on purpose as much as like all the guys are hanging out together. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's getting a little bit more frustrated and she's like, look, I'm not nurse ratchet. You know, I could be a fun person too. So at one point in the middle of the group session, when she's getting really frustrated, yeah, uh, she takes off her top and flashes the whole cast. Whoa, really? <laughs> yep. Wow. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, I think she became more part of the group after that. <laughs> well, it's a shame she had to do that in order to be part of the group, but I guess, I mean, 
she broke the ice how she could break the ice you yep. know kind of let these guys know what the deal was you know patron tanner mcguire says one flew over the cuckoo's nest is all about the constant battle between routine and chaos although you could argue there is some benefit to having routine in your life it is clear that the authoritarian nurse ratchet has pushed this to the point of being a detriment to many of the patients which is why they are so won over by mcmurphy's anarchistic anarchistic nature in your personal opinion, at what point does routine do more harm than good? And on the opposite end, do you think McMurphy's brand of chaos can be just as harmful to the patients of the ward as Nurse Ratchet's strict routine? God, I love that our fans are. See, and I was hesitant yeah. to feel this way or speak about it this way because I was worried the fans would turn on me or turn on us. And and I, I, I'm so glad to hear that question. Yeah, 100%. I think his stuff is just as detrimental. Mm-hmm. To Nurse Ratchet, and I don't go along with Steve. Like she's, and, and I, of course, I always respect Steve's point of view, but she's the knowledgeable one in the situation. She has the training. She understands therapy. She has the doctor's approval. So, would I side with Nurse Nurse Ratchet in a conversation between her and McMurphy? Probably more than I would anticipate, or than I would think. But in the end, I think McMurphy's more dangerous because there is no follow up to this moment of enjoyment great we all go we get to watch the ball game what happens afterwards right what, what's around okay what if the what if the ball game's tension and stress causes these guys to relapse what if the ball game is triggering what if these guys have daddy issues of going to ball games with their fathers and now their father's not around or their fathers used to beat them or sexually abuse them or whatever or maybe they were fondled at a ball game maybe they played little league baseball and they were terrible at it got made fun of and it triggers that so there's responsibilities here right and i think there's more to it than just Great, we get to watch the ball game. You know, uh, it can be therapeutic, but it can also be quite detrimental. We don't know. She, he would have to know all their case files in order to really think it was the right thing to do. Right, and so those are the things that I think I'd be, I'd be leaning towards in terms of looking at it all. But the first part of the question, routine and chaos, I am in a constant battle of that all the time. So because I know routine is important. But I also need to feel like I have my alone time, my own time, where I can do what I want. And sometimes I fuck with my routine by leaning into my chaos too much and going up until the last minute doing what I need to do because it's my way of rebelling. I still have that instinct inside of me, which is always a problem. So I would say as you get older, routine is much more important. Well, I can't even say that because routine is important to establish patterns when you're young so that you can succeed in life. But a little chaos is always good. Just finding where to have those moments of chaos, I think, is important. I, I think there's a balance, and that balance point is different for every person. Agree. I mean, it's not yeah, general. Yeah, you're right. There's not like a rule like, oh, chaos is bad and routine right. is good, or it's you know, in my life, I the way that I do my work is routine. You know, yeah. I try very hard to do, you know come up with the system modify the system, make the system the best possible system and repeat the system over and over and get better at it. Right. That's routine. Yeah. You know, practicing martial arts, practicing the, those are routine things. You do them the same way you do them over and over again. Yeah. I've also gone to burning man. Yeah. Land of chaos. Yeah. I love, I have friends who are far more chaotic than me <laughs> and that's good for me, you know, yeah. because they will get me to do, they will be McMurphy and they will get mm-hmm. me to do things that maybe I wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those friends are too chaotic and I have to be away from them or, or go like, Oh, that was not a good choice. You know, I can't back you up on that. I think there's a balance to be found. And, and, and here's what I would say too, is that the question is, is it serving you? 
you know, like a lot of times, like you're doing the same routine, same routine, and you're not happy and it's not working for you. Right. Time to change that routine, you know? Mm-hmm. And the same is true with chaos. Like, you know, if, if you can't make, if you can't get your bills paid, well, yeah. then that chaotic lifestyle, man, that's probably not constructive anymore. Agreed. Agreed. It can lead to self-destruction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why having, which I, I really like that you brought up the polls, that these are the polls of McMurphy and Ratchet yeah, rather yeah. than the good guy and the enemy, you yeah. know. Um, we're in a meeting with the doctors and I was going through my notes. This time I went, oh, at this moment, McMurphy still believes that he has 68 days and then he automatically gets released. Right. I think if he didn't, if he knew that that was not true, he would be very different in this scene. Mm-hmm. Because the what he the first thing he says is, "Ah, oh, fucking nurse, man. What do you mean, sir? She um, she ain't honest." All the doctors in this room, by the way, are doctors from the hospital. <laughs> These are actors. That's awesome. Oh, now look, uh, Miss Ratchet's one of the finest nurses we've got in this institution. <laughs> well, I don't want to break up the meeting or nothing but she's something of a cunt ain't she doc it's really if you knew that you you were dependent upon these doctors to let you out you would not talk this way yeah yeah well you know i've uh, been observing you here now for the last four weeks and i don't see any evidence of mental illness at all and i think that you've been trying to put us on all this time and McMurphy kind of thinks, well, what do you want me to do? You know, and comes up with ways to act crazy to prove he's crazy. Yeah. How did you feel about what happened yesterday? Well, you want to kill. You know what I mean? And he gives this kind of crazy laugh. <laughs> Which, again, saying that he was thinking of killing is not a way to get him released from this place. Right. I think he could have been sent back to jail. I think if he... If he handled this meeting differently, yeah. he would be alive. Billy would be alive. All of them would have survived. Probably. This. Probably, yeah. yeah. We're outside. Some of the guys are loading up into the bus. Other guys are starting a basketball game. McMurphy looks around. He looks at the barbed wire, looks up at this tree above, calls over the chief, and essentially climbs up the chief's back over the barbed wire to escape and jumps in the school bus and steals the bus with all the people in it. <laughs> So in the book, this isn't a stolen bus. It is, they have a vote to go on this fishing trip. That's McMurphy's idea. They, they win at the vote. And finally, Dr. Speedy actually joins them on the trip oh, and wow. pays the money necessary to actually rent the, the charter the boat. So it happens very differently. It's yeah. not stealing the truck. Milos Foreman didn't want to do this whole sequence. Really? So, so here's what's interesting to me. Years ago, with Jaws, I said that I thought one of the most brilliant things was that in the book, they go home every night on the Orca. And in the movie, Spielberg says, once they're out, they're out. Yeah. And then I brought this up recently because when we just did Misery in the book, you never leave Paul and the house. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, Rob Reiner makes the choice, no, no, we should cut away to have our detective, you know, to have the sheriff and all that stuff. Right. Here, Milos Foreman, his belief was, we're in the hospital. We should never leave the hospital. Hmm. And it was Saul Zantz who said, now the sequence is in the book and says, no, no, you got to leave. This is, we need to do this. And they fought and fought and fought. And finally Saul said, 
you have to shoot this. I'm the producer of the movie. You have to go shoot this boat thing. And Milo said, fine, but I'm not going to put it in the movie. And of course, then they shot it and they put it in the movie. <laughs> hey, you know, it's a collaborative effort always. And it's a what? great break from having been in the ward the whole time because an audience watching a film set in a, a mental ward for two hours, that's that's claustrophobic. So a little break, a little difference, a little break out, I think is a good way, a good thing to see in the film and at the right time when it happens. Well, and I think, too, this thing we've been talking about, about who is McMurphy and is he a good guy? Mm. If you take this out of the movie, he is right. much less of a good guy. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You know, because this he clearly gives them something, even just them driving through town and yes. just watching these people react to what they see. Yeah. Uh, and then we stop at this place and he brings a girl on the bus. And that is Candy, who's uh, Mar Maria Small. Mm -hmm. And the reactions from all these guys who haven't probably been around a uh, uh, available lady in a long time mm. um and we pull up to where their charter boats are and they're all getting out he's handing out the life jackets on this boat and up comes uh the harbor manager and the guy playing the harbor manager is a guy named mel lambert and i want to tell you how he got on this movie okay mel lambert is sitting next to michael douglas on an airplane <laughs> and they're just chatting and Michael Douglas finds out that this guy is a big used car salesman in Salem, Oregon. <laughs> and that one of the main clientele he has is he sells, he and his family sold to a lot of Native Americans. And so he has oh, a wow. lot of contacts with the Native American community. That's and cool. Michael Douglas says, well, we're having a really hard time finding a really tall Native American to play Chief Bromden. Wow. So if you think of somebody, let me know. And he gives him like his card or something. And Mel Lambert's other hobby, in addition to selling used cars in Salem, Oregon, is that he is an announcer at local rodeos. That's awesome. And Will Sampson works rodeos. <laughs> so he calls up Michael Douglas four months later and says, I found the guy. And that is how Will Sampson gets on this movie. Wow. That's awesome. So their deal with Mel Lambert, used car salesman of Salem, Oregon, is we're going to give you a part in the film to thank you for finding Will Sampson. <laughs> but they don't give him a script. They say, you know what? You're just going to improvise this scene with Jack. Oh. So right before they start shooting, this is this is according to Mel Lambert, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Jack walks up to him and says, I'm taking your boat. And Mel says that he, without missing a beat, looked at Jack Nichols and said, you take that boat, you little turkey. You're going to get the worst ass kicking you've ever had. And they just start arguing. And then they just bring the arguing in front of the camera. And that is what we see. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. What are you doing on this boat? We're going fishing. No, you're not going fishing. Not on this boat. You're not going fishing on this boat. Uh, method acting. You got to love it. Yep. And I love that 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 Jack introduces all of them as doctors. Yeah. It's, oh, oh, my God. And it's almost believable. Like, you could see it right from the way they look and the way they're dressed. Uh, it could You could possibly get away with that excuse. It's so good. Well, the one person I think that doesn't pull it off a doctor is Dr. R.P. McMurphy. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's the only he one. looks the least like a doctor. Yeah. Whereas Scanlon with that huge beard, you know, kind of does. Cheswick totally looks like a doctor. Absolutely. Harding does. Yeah, Harding. Yeah, totally. Um, so, and then we were taking the boat out and I love just, you know, Chris Lloyd <laughs> untying the boat and then slipping and hanging off of the edge of the boat as it sails out. 
Uh, that was Christopher Lloyd's idea, by the way. Oh, yeah. And we're sailing out in the ocean and just the feeling of the world opening. It's just what you said. We've had all that claustrophobia. And yeah. then it just opens up, you know. And he brings Cheswick up on the bridge and has him steer the boat. And Cheswick is panicking. I just hold it steady right there like that. Steady? Steady, yeah. Just, I just go straight. Straight as an arrow, Charlie. Straight, man? Just straight. That's right. But Mac, Mac, this thing ain't too steady, Mac. Mac! And then we have this whole sequence where he's having them bait up their hooks with the dead fish. So a couple things about this. First is they narrowly missed a, a huge storm. Oh, my God. Yeah, they, they 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 were supposed to go out on a day that this unexpected giant storm came in to the Oregon coast. Wow. Um, but they were so far behind that they ended up having to push two days. So they missed the giant storm. But that didn't mean that the water was nice and smooth and calm. <laughs> and this cast were not made of, of sailors. <laughs> yeah. And they're handling dead fish. Right. That don't smell good. It was a lot of vomit. There's a lot of seasickness, particularly apparently Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd were just puking this whole time. I think they shot for five days out on this boat. Um, There's one moment where Jack is doing a great performance. He's talking about baiting the hook and I could swear he's about to puke. Like it just, there's just one moment where you see his face with that look. And I bet the director said cut and he just puked, you know, but it's really funny. Oh, and in the midst of all this, while we're doing all the hook baiting, Billy is talking or looking at candy. Yeah, yeah. And you, you come, got, 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 you, got you beautiful hair. Thank you. And we just heard this story about him proposing to this other girl. I mean, clearly, th- there's a parallel going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack grabs the girl. They head below decks. Everyone is out theoretically fishing. I love that Cheswick is in a, a terrified voice singing to himself. I'm <laughs> and martini looks back at where jack went and he goes to go look in the the window to watch whatever's going down and then all the other guys leave their you know rods and reels behind yeah. to go peek on jack and candy so this is where i come back to right because he Again, in this moment where you think he's, yeah, he breaks them out and takes them on the bus, and then you know he he picks up a woman. Okay, it's about him. Uh, then he then he takes them out on the boat, and yes, he's sweet with them. He teaches them how to bait. Tells Cheswick to drive the boat, which is pretty irresponsible since Cheswick's never driven a boat, just so he can get a, a, a underneath into the room and have sex with Candy. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like it's all about McMurphy. And yes, these are sweet moments. But in the end, it's all about McMurphy getting his needs met. And I think that's where the dangerous stuff lies with him. So, which I, kind of taints the sweetness, in my opinion, for me, for me, for me. Well, I think you should take, I think you should take McMurphy's sweetness with a grain of salt. I do think yeah. he cares to various degrees, but it's all, that caring is all secondary to he wants to have sex with Candy. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, right, exactly. You know. Well, and it's this thing I think we talked about in the first episode is he's following his pleasure his and his urges. Yeah. And sometimes those things that he's following line up with things that end up being good for other people, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't. Yeah. So and I love the moment. So all of the guys have disappeared from the, you know, the aft of the boat. And then Cheswick turns around and sees that everyone's gone. Hey! Where'd everyone go? 
<laughs> and then he just lets go of the wheel and the boat oh. starts going in circles. Yeah. This is a funny sequence. It's so funny. And then out comes Jack, you know, half dressed, yeah, going, What God damn it, I told you. And then suddenly there's a fish on the line and they're all fighting to get the fish and there's total chaos. And then Harding goes up because he wants to take over driving the boat. And it's just, it's really fun. But, and I know, I know, I know our fans get so mad at me sometimes. There's great symbolism here. This is what it would be like. You referenced this earlier, Steve. This is what it would be like if McMurphy ran the world. Oh, yeah. It would be utter chaos. It would be him trying to get his needs met. Um, They'd get distracted by a big fish because that's probably them bringing in new people into the movement or new money into the movement. But whoever's driving the boat, he's just letting whoever drive the boat. And then other people are fighting to drive the boat to be the person who's kind of in, in considered to be the head of the of the movement or whatever so there's so much here that is in, involved in what it's like for mcmurphy if he was ever in charge of anything and i think it's a great little if you're looking for it it's a great little difference between how he would run things and how a nurse ratchet runs things well again so many thoughts <laughs> a, it's definitely more fun in this world than it was in nurse ratchet's group session you know oh, what yeah, i mean no doubt. There, there's definitely more fun and it is also total chaos. And so it's funny. Yeah. So two, two things I'll try to bring them up quickly um, okay. is on the Star Trek show. One of the themes that's come up now many times, particularly in the first season, is that in this weird way, Star Trek, the original series is the World War II generation, the so-called greatest generation. Right, right. Which right. is Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn, a lot of the writers and the producers talking to the baby boomer generation that are the teenagers coming up in the, in the mid, six, mid to late 60s. And that there's this, and that is exactly what we're talking about here, which is there's the World War II generation who is serious, who knows how to get stuff done, who cares about building strong institutions and what is the process and making money and making real things. And there's the baby boomers who go, this is all bullshit. We won't reject <laughs> all this. Like we should be able to be free. All of your institutions are crushing our spirits. And so yeah. you have the 60s, you have the hippie movement. Right. And my opinion is that we need both, you know. It, like and I and I just remember having there was a good friend of mine who had a theater company in Berkeley, and the basic theme it was it was almost all actors, and it was we're going to decide everything together, and it's all going to be a group, and we're all going to be a unit, and we're going to do it. It's not going to be a single leader who's telling people what to do. All of us together are going to make these decisions. And I remember I was sort of uh, like a junior member of the group at this time, and oh. I just remember like no someone's got to make decisions like you can't like a bunch of actors who i love actors yeah yeah 15 actors sitting in a room trying to decide what play to do and how to do it was cheswick letting go of the steering wheel and the yep. boat going in fucking circles yep exactly you know because everyone left <laughs> yeah well and everyone is absolutely certain that their way is the right way right. and everyone's trying to make it okay and everybody's trying to collaborate and it's like no somebody has to point in a direction and say that's where we're going at a certain point, you know, or to somebody's, you know, <laughs> things need structure. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, so, <laughs> but the sequence is totally fun and totally joyful. And then we cut to this shot of all of these people on shore watching yeah. as this boat is coming back in, <laughs> oh, including a bunch of police. So good, man. And, and you see all of them, they have they caught a bunch of fish and they're all yeah. smiling. Yeah, they're all happy, yeah. I think this was absolutely therapeutic for all of them. But the other thing is that, and I think this is a crime, 
and I understand okay. probably why it happened in the book, Chief yeah. Bromden's on the boat, and here oh, he's not. Right. And he stays it, back. It, That's right. Yeah. Well, and the reason is is because in the book they all agreed to go on the trip. It was a sanctioned trip. Gotcha. And in this, McMurphy steals the bus with all of the people that are voluntary that were already on the bus, and Chief isn't voluntary, so he's not on the bus. But right on. But it's such a huge thing, you know, because the story of the chief is when you meet him, he talks about what a small person he is. He's a tiny, tiny person that his hand gets lost in McMurphy's hand because that's the image he has of himself. And in the course of the book, he grows in his own mind. And the boat is one of the key, key sequences that helps him grow. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're back having a meeting with those doctors and they're talking about whether or not he's crazy or whether he's dangerous yeah. or sick. Well, John, what do you want to do with him? I think we've had our turn. I'd like to send him back to the uh, work farm, frankly. And then we see that the other person sitting on this meeting is Nurse Ratchet. Well, gentlemen, in my opinion, if we send him back to Pendleton or we send him up to Disturbed, it's just one more way of passing on our problem to somebody else. You know, we don't like to do that. So I'd like to keep him on the ward. I think we can help him. What do you think? Steve Morris, do you believe her? No. Wow. Okay. Do, okay, let me let me frame let me say that a little bit differently. <laughs> do I believe that some part of her thinks that she can help him? Yes, I do believe that. Okay. Do I believe that is her real motivation? Absolutely not. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. What do you think? It's tough. I think because the, the the comment is still a comment that we hear nowadays, don't we, in our political discourse. We don't want to pass it off to someone else. Deal with it here. Deal with it here. We don't want to pass it on to our children or pass it on. To, we don't want to kick the buck uh, down the road or, or kick the problem down the road. So I think her logic is sound. Sure. But I don't 100% think that she understands what she's walking into. So I think there is a, a majority of her thinks that it is the right thing to do to try to cure him, to try to heal him or whatever. And there's maybe even professional pride in the fact that she would be able to convert him and turn him or what have you. So there's an element of that in my mind. I don't see her as malicious as she has typically been set out to be in previous analysis of this movie i think there's more to what she's doing and because that's an incredible job by louise fletcher as the actress playing the role there's much more going on in her eyes and in her mouth than you think like there's something about the way she moves her lips in certain moments and her eyes in certain moments that you're just like oh there's something more going on here and so i don't 100 percent think that she's you know just wanting to take away his independence and step on him like he's a bug i think there's some kind of curiosity, professional curiosity. And it, it's her belief that we should handle problems right at the source. I think that she is part of the institution. Mm -hmm. And I think that she believes, I do think she believes that the institution is doing good. Yeah. And that she is serving a good by being part of the institution. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's a lot, and you, you will hear about this in people talk about this police work of, of like how much, how much is dominance and power, a, yeah. you know, part of law enforcement that you can't let this other side think they can push you around. 
right. you know, and that uh, and that some people need power to be asserted over them in order to do the right thing. That if they're left to their own devices, they're going to be chaotic. Right. And which is true of McMurphy. That's exactly yeah. what we've been talking about. Yep. So the idea that I need to keep him down or break him down or break all of these men down is that in order to get them to conform mm -hmm. and that in the long run, conforming to what society wants you to be is going to be a good thing. And so I think in that sense, she totally thinks that this is going to be a good thing. But we never see any scene where she says, I'm going to conform them. I'm going to break them. I'm going to make them feel this way. Or, you know, if you're looking at it from the outside, it looks like she legitimately wants to get these people to confront their issues. Now, you can argue her tactics, certainly. And when we find out that everyone is there voluntarily, that makes it even more of an interesting situation for how she's doing what she's doing. But the conforming is to be able to make help you function normally in society, what we typically right. typify as normal, quote unquote, you know. And I think there is an element of that here, bigger than I think people give her credit for in previous interpretations of the movie. I think I'm on my own that maybe. <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm on a peninsula near your island. I'm on Hayward <laughs> Island again, but with <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. I'm on Ratchet Island. There we go. Yes. Um, I think that there is a certain point where people servicing institutions that are not servicing the people they're supposed to service is bad. I agree. But here's the deal. How does she represent the institution when even the doctors in the institution are considering sending him back? That's the thing. They're not all of one mindset. There are multiple opinions in that room. And so to me, I don't know that she represents the institution singularly. Singularly, I think she represents her part in the institution and she wants to play her part in the institution and wants the permission to do so from these doctors. Well, the other thing too, yeah. and this is, is that we are not good at pulling our own emotional feelings about a particular thing out of our decision-making process. Right. Uh, I also good, very think, good. Very good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think she fucking hates McMurphy. Really? She hates Wait, where are you? Absolutely. Tell me where you're getting that from. I from her facial expressions when she watches him, okay. from the way that he's combative, combative with her, that right. she sees him as someone who's questioning her authority. Yes. I mean, I, I, I definitely think she is. Doesn't so he's like coming her. into her. Right. situation yes fucking it all up at his ex at whatever he wants to do and somehow all up in her mind yes. to be mad at her at her at well, him if uh, someone came into your house started tearing shit up and started questioning how you were parenting jacks that might not sit so well with you well certainly i don't know what this person is doing in my house if someone is coming <laughs> into my business where i'm supposed to help people with issues well and the thing too is that yeah i yeah. think the, I think the ward would have been better off if they had watched the fucking World Series. I think the ward would have been better off if they had left McMurphy in a fucking prison. That's I don't think so. I well, I think I mean depending depending. I think Billy, if Nurse Ratchet doesn't do to him what she does to him at the end of the movie, yeah. is way better off because McMurphy was here. I think Billy Billy is way better off. McMurphy doesn't force him to have sex with that woman. So that's what I'm telling right. you. To me, well, let's we'll get to that. We'll both, get to that later. They're both guilty. In my opinion, but anyway, go um, so, but <laughs> this is why this is a great fucking movie, yeah. and this is why why this is a seventies movie. Yeah, yeah, you know what I, I mean, hundred percent. 
It's like we're not going to film. Yeah. Yeah. Like you and I might love wrath of Khan or back to the future, but yeah. we're not going to have arguments like this about, no. you know, about what Marty McFly really, what, you know, it's like, no, there's nothing to argue about. It's back to the not future. attacking systemic injustices. In no, the exactly. Yeah. Um, in complex ways. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have chief Bromden on the boat, but we do have the chief on the basketball court. And at first McMurphy's just trying to get him to have his hands up and they start playing against the, the orderlies who are beating them. And then McMurphy passes to the chief. The chief catches the ball and he puts it in the basket. And watching Will Sampson's walk to the other side of the court, the pride in it and the size of it is just so fucking joyful, you know? And then he totally goaltends the next basket. I mean, pushes it up through. <laughs> and then he smiles as he runs now back yeah. to, to onto offense. So good. It, well, and this is the thing about this movie. When it's fun, it is really, really fun. Agreed. Agreed. Which yeah. is what makes the drama all the more yeah. um, effective, for sure. So, and then we cut to another scene where all of the actors had a great time because they're all in this pool, which is like a giant hot tub. <laughs> and they're all playing around. And one of the orderlies who's Washington, I think, who's a theater, well-known theater actor, uh-huh. uh, po- kind of pokes McMurphy, who's hanging on the wall with like a cane. Yeah. And McMurphy says, I'll be seeing you on the outside. You know what I mean? By the time you get out of here, don't be too old to even get it up. 68 days, buddy. And this is when he finds out. What the fuck you talking about 68 days? That's in jail, sucker. I still don't know where you at. Yeah, where am I at, Washington? With us, baby. You're with us. And you're going to stay with us until we let you go. You brought this up in part one, and I wanted Mm. to come back to it here, which is it is not an accident that the guys that work for Nurse Ratchet that create control are all African-Americans. Right. Okay. And one of the things that I think Kesey talks about, because a lot of this is about institutions and institutionalization, is how the power structure uses minorities to control other minorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To keep order. Of course. You know. Yeah. I mean, this is something you, those of us in the communities of color talk about all the time, this idea of a a, a white majority or a, a... you know, in the situation, a white power structure seeks constantly to create division between people of color and the communities of color um, in order to keep them from coming together uh, and possibly being of one mind in changing things. And I think that's that's on purpose. And certainly we've seen from Tuskegee Airmen, uh, I'm sorry, from the Tuskegee experiment to, um, you know, the rumors about how AIDS was put into the black communities. There's There's all kinds of stuff of how communities of color have been subject to abuses by government, by a, a white power structure government. And so it, it's their mistrust and suspicion that caused COVID vaccines to be so slow to be accepted within communities of color. And so there's a history. And so this idea of using one set of minorities in order to subjugate another set of minorities is true. And we see it in all. Like I just finished watching Emancipation and I don't want to ruin anything about the movie, but there's a, a black person who's in charge of some of the slaves and what he does or not in charge, but over some of the slaves and what he does, there's an altercation about that, a conversation about that. Um, and we, we know this and I want to tread very lightly here, but we know this in other situations where um, 
ethnicities have been, you know, taken and seen as uh, terrible people and other people within the ethnicity are put in charge and carry out justice in worse ways than the people who put them in that situation. So we see that happening all the time. The usage of, you know, communities of color or people within the same communities to subjugate others because of the white power structure. And it's, uh, it's unsettling when you see it, you know? And by the way, I want to make this really clear. It does not mean that if it was all like, if it doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen the other way, we don't know, right? We don't know. Would, what would the world be like? Or what would the country be like if it was, you know, majority black people in charge, majority Latinos in charge. We don't know what that would look like in the future. So, but I, so I'm only speaking about what is occurring or what has occurred in our country based on the evidence that we've experienced over decades in our country. So, well, just to your last point, in my opinion is that people are people and yeah, that right. the, exactly. the, the, these ideas, you know, you've heard me say it before and someday we'll have a long conversation about it, but <laughs> this whole race thing isn't real, you know, and right, that you, right, you, right. you know, you put a bunch of people in charge and you give them a lot of power. Well, they're going to behave the way they're going to behave. You're human you know? beings. Yeah. They're right. human beings. 100%. Um, well, and the other one, the other example I'd bring up is that, that you had, you know, before we define races the way we did today, it used to be that the Irish and Italian were not considered white. Jews like me were mm. not considered white. Yeah. And that Irish cops who were not give there were all sorts of places where Irish people were not accepted, Catholics right. were not accepted, and Irish cops were all over the East Coast, were part of the power structure over other minorities. Yeah, other immigrants so, too. So it was their way to get power was to become part of the power structure as the enforcing arm right. Right. of a group that wasn't accepting them, you right. know. Which is what you see here in the in the film, Steve. Exactly. Which is so interesting. Yeah. I'd like to know why. None of the guys never told me that you, Miss Ratchet, and the doctors could keep me here till you're good and ready to turn me loose. Do you think that the the other patients did this on purpose? Do you think they thought about this and purposely didn't tell them? No, I don't think. Yeah, no, I don't either. I, I don't, yeah, I, you know, I don't think it would even occur to them. Would anyone care to answer, Mr. McMurphy? Answer what? You heard me, Harding. You let me go on hassling Nurse Ratchet here, knowing how much I had to lose, and you never told me nothing. Now, Mac, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I didn't know anything about uh, how much. Wait a minute. Now, listen. Now, look. I'm I'm voluntary here. See, I'm not committed. This is, dude. This scene is so good. I totally forgotten about this scene. So, watching it in the movie this time around, I was like, oh, that's right. What a great little element to throw in there because it makes it even worse that you're choosing to be a part of this situation. So in essence, as we are, what this, uh, obviously the book was a commentary on our society. People are choosing to be a part of this society. Exactly. You could leave and go to another country. You can go someplace else if you wanted to really get out of this situation, but you are choosing for the most part to be part of this society. Well, the line where he says, Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here. And then you haven't got the guts just to walk out. Don't don't you see that in life, though, Steve, from people who just constantly complain about a situation that they're in. And yes. then you go, well, do this. You can do this. You can do that. No, no. I just want to complain about it. And it's like, well, why, why don't you want to change it? What is it about it that you can't change? And it's because people fear change most of the time more than they fear the routine that they have, you know, people fear the chaos of change over uh, more than they fear the routine. 
You know, they'd rather bitch. There's a comfort in bitching about it because at least it's always there than there is in in actually breaking out from it. You know, and I was it's, sure. We, I think we're all guilty of it all the time. I mean, yeah. one of the great advantages of society and is that even if it's horrible and we hate it, is we know what we're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. We know our place. Yes. I, I'm supposed to do this and have this job and pay these taxes and save up my money and get health insurance. And I'm supposed to do that. And eventually I'm going to look to retire. All these things is like, that's what I'm supposed to get, you know, all, have the kids and do all that stuff. Yeah. When you take that away, well, then it's like, okay, what are you going to do? It's up to you. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. And I, and I think too, there is a reason that Ken Kesey is one of the fathers of the counterculture movement. Yeah. What is the counterculture movement? But saying, we don't have to live that way. Yeah. You know, we don't yeah. have to buy into the institutions. Exactly. And the thing is, and Steve, like, you, you know, I, I, the last six months I, w- I was at Kaleido where the, I hated it, bitched about it every day. Lindley, the lady Allo, she'll tell you, I bitched about it every day. I was so unfulfilled. I was so marginalized. I was so frustrated being there, having to stand in line behind everybody, have them dole out things. Have, sit there like Oliver with the with the with the plate out. Please, sir, can I review this movie? Please, sir, can I react to this trailer? You know, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. And yes, they gave me more to do, but it still felt like, in terms of the sports and all that, but it still felt like the big things that I wanted to do, I wasn't getting and I wasn't getting the chance. And so you could feel that, you know, and they weren't letting me write. And I was just constantly complaining about it. And she'd be like, Well, why don't you go out on your own? Why don't you go this? And I didn't, and I didn't do it. I, I didn't do it until I was forced to do it by them letting me go. And that, that was the crazy part of it all. And I've never been happier. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's got its own stresses, but I've never been happier. And so the fear of not being able to do this thing that I was so, uh, you know, in the system of doing was more powerful for me than the possi- than grasping the possibilities of a future that could be much more fulfilling. You know, so it's, it's always, you just are always caught in that sometimes when you're confronting change and you're frustrated about a situation. I, I was trying to figure out if I could say what percentage I think is people that feel totally trapped and don't know how to get out of the thing that they're in. Mm. I don't know what that percentage is, but it's pretty high. And I've spoken to a lot of people, people who've been in a 40 year marriage that makes them miserable. People that, you know, hate their jobs. Right. What do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. You're not. You're no crazier than the average asshole out walking around on the streets, and that's it. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. I think he was absolutely... He's got a functional crazy, right? The people who are in there, I think they have a a diagnosable, unstable, or mental health situation. He's just angry at the world and rebelling and but it doesn't mean that there isn't an element of that in there but he could function in society if he really wanted to he he could make it but his impulses are there to rebel against it but he's saying that about them he's saying that billy and cheswick and all of them aren't any crazier than the people out in the world oh i thought he was talking about himself in that moment that he's like raging at them but Mm. he's really talking about himself that's how i Mm. took it oh that's an interpretation i'd never thought of yeah. yeah, I always thought he's talking about them. No, yeah, no, because he, he see, I think he's yelling at himself. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. I just in that moment, this time know. around, rather watching it, I felt like he was using them to yell at himself. Like there's a part of him that understands these things that he's doing. Um, he is playing at a certain role, so he could be considered a certain way. But in fact, he could function because there's no way any rational person looks at those guys and and goes. 
they can function in the real world. Chesworth cannot function in the real world. Billy can't function in the real world. Uh, no way. Uh, I mean, Christopher Lloyd's character, no way. Like they, there has to be, you know, there has to be time taken to really get them back into a, a certain spot, you know? I think it's, it's so hard because but you might be right. People, I'm sure you're probably right. I'm just, this is what I took it. Yeah. I think that they are all close to being able to function in the normal world. Like mm-hmm. Billy, we see this brief moment later on where he, I think he could function. That moment is very, very brief. I think Harding could function. I think, you know, like it's, it's so interesting because right now we're in this moment of in New York city, the mm-hmm. mayor oh, yeah. just made this decision of forcibly taking people with mental health problems off the street. Mm-hmm. And we're dealing today. And part of it is a result of things that started happening in the late sixties yeah. where a lot of these mental institutions were disbanded and people were kicked out and they found their way on the street. And there's yeah. some high percentage of the homeless population that are people dealing with severe mental health issues. And the question of, well, should, are they better off where they are or should we force them into an institution? Like, what do we th- These are very difficult questions. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, and that's the thing. That's why I can't even begin to wrap my head around what he did. Cause I, I have so many different thoughts. Those are very challenging observations you made Randall. I'm sure some of the men would like to comment. So she's expecting them to talk about this. Mm. And Scanlon, who's barely talked, I think, in this whole movie, says, I want to know why the dorm is locked in the daytime and on weekends. And then Cheswick wants to know about his cigarettes. May I have my cigarettes, please, Miss Ratched? You sit down, Mr. Cheswick, and wait your turn. Apparently, standing up in group session is definitely against the rules. McMurphy has been running a casino and taking all of your cigarettes and a lot of your money. That's why we're rationing the cigarette. Is she telling the truth? Yes, of course. Absolutely. McMurphy is taking advantage of these people who have mental health issues uh, and taking their money from them. uh, And I think that's a terrible thing to do. But I also think infantilizing these people and saying you can't control when you get a cigarette or where you can go is part of what's bad for their mental health. It's a, it's an interesting line to walk because is she infantilizing them or does she – has there been experiences in the past where she's given them what they want and they've been worse or they've freaked out or they've it, they've been irresponsible with it? Do you know what I'm saying? I don't oh, know. Oh, totally. Because I'm not – obviously, I'm not a mental health expert. But so I, I wonder if, you know, there's something about slowly giving them what they want, slowly taking it step by step so that they don't go too far. You know, certainly all of them show impulses throughout the movie of going too far in certain moments, but I don't know. You know, oh, the, these questions—the one you just brought up about, mm. like, if you give them some room and they go too far, and or do you infantilize them and control them too much? And yeah, I have an eleven-year-old son. Mm. Karen and I deal with this all the time, all because he's not that responsible, and we want him to be responsible. And the only way to train him to be responsible is to give him responsibilities. Right. But he's not very trustworthy. And so we're constantly going like, how much room do we give him hoping he'll make the right decision? And how much do we control him to protect him from making the wrong decision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's stuff going on all the time. It's really, really difficult. <laughs> and this this moment, and I, and I think it parallels what's happening here. Like her response to Scanlon about the dorm is she says, Remember, Mr. Scanlon, we've discussed many times that time spent in the company of others is very therapeutic while time spent brooding alone only increases a feeling of separation. Now, you remember that, don't you? Do you mean to say it's sick to want to be off by yourself? Mm. Good counter. I think it's a great counter. 
Yeah, yeah. And I also think it goes to the institution has a one-size-fits-all way of trying to solve these people's problems. And humans are not one-size-fits-all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If no, you that's... forced me to be in a group in a public place all day, every day, and then locked me up in a room at night, that would not be good for my mental health. <laughs> that would be terrible. And Cheswick keeps going back to the cigarettes, and he's getting more and more upset. I want my cigarettes, Miss Ratched. I want my cigarettes. But you're saying infantilizing, but here he is acting like an infant. He's acting like a child. Yeah, absolutely. So is that it learned totally behavior, is. or is that something he had from the beginning? I don't know. But taking away his cigarettes is making Cheswick have this breakdown. Yeah, you know. So it's like I, it. It is a very well. This is why, again. This is why it's a great movie. It is a very very <laughs> difficult question. True. Um, his freakout is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Cheswick, you sit down. Give him a cigarette, will you, Harding? My last one. That's a fucking lie. Why don't you give him a cigarette? Well, look, I'm not running a charity ward. Uh, the actor playing Harding is William Redfield. Mm-hmm. And about halfway through the shoot, he start, he gets like a cold. And the cold isn't really going away. And he's coughing a lot. And fortunately, they're literally in a hospital. And one of the heads of the hospital is acting in the movie with them, which is the guy playing Dr. Spivey. So he examines him. And we find out that William Redfield has leukemia. Oh, no. Yeah. And that it is advanced and very, very serious. And the guy, Dr. Brooks, I think his name is, who's playing Dr. Spivey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically says, I think he's got about 18 months to live. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And they're halfway through the shoot. And now the question is, I mean, the guy's sick. Yeah. Do they recast him? What are they going to do? And they go to William Redfield and talk to him about it. Like, how do you feel? What do you want to do? And he basically says, this is the best part I've ever had in a movie. Yeah. Let me finish it. Let me finish. Right. Of course. And so they finished the film. And basically, he did die 18 months later. Wow. Just and, and lived just long enough to make it to the big premiere and see the movie. I don't think he lived long enough to make it to the Oscars. I got to respect it, uh, to be honest with you. You Me fight too. the end, you know, and you want to leave some kind of legacy or leave some kind of calling card. And if it's the greatest role you ever got, at least in that way, you're like, I don't know, you're just saying goodbye to the art that you loved so much, you know? the craft i i so get it i mean like this is a guy you and i have known so many people like him who yep. are working actors and they're doing theater and they're getting by and they're probably having trouble making rent and they probably had years they didn't get insurance right and now you get this one big part in this important powerful movie yeah and finding out that you got 18 months left yeah it's like rain on your wedding day <laughs> <laughs> come on y'all can't be the, it's not too soon for god's sakes he's been dead for quite some time we can make a little bit of a joke but i do i do appreciate this and look i mean i'm one of Dude, those i'm people. still laughing at that joke <laughs> that's, that's i'm one of these fatalists that's that you know it's like we're all gonna die everybody like it's a, we're all gonna die it's okay we've gotta you know kind of relax about this kind of stuff honor the legacy but also you know, have a little fun as well. And I think this is, I think, I think he'd probably appreciate the joke as well. Cause we've been lauding him throughout the whole podcast to his performance. Oh, he's great. He's so good in that role. You know, 
know, and he was one of these guys. And who knows what the future would have held for him? You know, we saw what happened with Christopher Lloyd, with Danny DeVito. We saw what happened with a number of these people at the beginning, Vincent Scavelli at the beginnings here. Who knows what would have been his future, maybe sitcom stuff or a constant working character actor like M. Emmett Walsh or J.T. Walsh, who, of course, sadly passed early as well. But like could have lived a quite a long life playing all these roles. But I mean, if you're going to go out, go out in one of the best films ever made, you know. I just want to go back to your joke. And the reason I want to go back to it <laughs> is because this is the thing about this movie and yeah. films of the seventies and the way we thought about things in the seventies that we're not thinking about now. Yeah. <clears throat> a lot of humor comes right out of pain mm-hmm. and oh, some of the funniest things in the world come out of the most painful things in the world. Yeah. And today we're kind of like, Hey, Hey, we can't laugh about anything that's painful. And it's like, well, then how do I get past the pain? Exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and the thing is, this movie is fun. And it uh-huh. is funny uh-huh. and it, and it's even funny in ways that are uncomfortable and difficult because some rough stuff going on in this yeah. film, okay. you know? And then the other thing that's happened, cause we've seen cigarettes getting lit and cigarette got flicked away is that one of the cigarettes happens up in Tabor, Christopher Lloyd's like the cuff of his pants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this apparently this happened to Milos Foreman, uh, where he got a cigarette in the cuff of his pants when he was in Czechoslovakia and his leg caught on fire and he freaked out. And that's where this comes from. Really? And so we have the building, like, we know something bad's going to happen. Cheswick <laughs> is getting crazier and crazier. The orderlies are coming closer to re- restrain Cheswick. And Tabor freaks out, starts screaming. They grab yeah. him away. That only escalates Cheswick, who goes, I ain't no little kid. You sit I ain't down. no little kid where you're going to have cigarettes kept from me like cookies. Take that right there. That's right. Now will you sit down? No, I won't. I won't. I want something done. So here's a little behind the scenes bit. Please. The actor playing Cheswick, Sidney Lasik, who I think is brilliant in this movie. Yeah, he's great. He was on the edge. For real. I mean, he's living in this mental institution. He's spending all day with the patients, all day really in this character. They're not breaking character at lunch. They're like in these characters. And Dr. Brooks, who plays Dr. Spivey, (laughs) comes up and says to to Milos, Michael Douglas, and Saul Zantz, look, I know you're worried about Cheswick. I can see why. If he really loses it, I've already have the right medication for him and we can take (laughs) care of him. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> right. Uh just in case. He's in good hands. <laughs> and as the insanity of this scene is building, McMurphy gets up, walks to the nurse's station, punches through the glass, and grabs the cigarettes and gives them to Cheswick. Right. And the orderlies grab McMurphy and he punches them and there's a struggle and then up comes the chief and lifts one of those orderlies off of him. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's scary too, the kind of, which is a really well acted scene. It's scary. The kind of power the chief possesses. Yep. And more orderlies appear and McMurphy is fighting and they restrain them all. And Milos Forman says that this is what he grew up with in Czechoslovakia. Wow. He says, this is the institution of the state and learning to live with it or fight against it. And continually when you fight back being broken down by the institution. Yeah. And the other thing he said is that because the institution is so strong, sometimes the way you fight back is just in completely crazy and meaningless and stupid ways, you know? Yeah. Because you have no, it's a, yeah, it's a wilding out, so to speak, because you have, you really have no other means to rebel against the situation. So yeah, that's a great, 
point he makes. Cheswick, the chief, and McMurphy are all in restraints. They're all sitting in this different ward. And this is we're on the disturbed floor. And the first person they're going to take away is Mr. Cheswick. And all of the, the people here, the nurses, the orderlies, the doctors, these are all just people who work in the hospital. Wow. This is this is what they do. Wow. And so they're literally telling them, just respond to Cheswick as you would respond to a patient. So this is kind of all an improv. Jesus Christ. No! Nobody's going to hurt you. Come on. No! And it's just sobbing and screaming and begging McMurphy as they drag him away. It's so sad. Yeah, but like you said, father figure type situations, McMurphy taking the place of, um, in essence, Harding was his father figure. So McMurphy showed up. So he gloms yep. on to McMurphy's uh, after McMurphy, after that uh, interaction on the, on the, with the game. And so now we see the culmination of it here in this moment where he's screaming for Mac as if Mac can do anything. Cause he's yep. so desperate, you know? And then he's gone. We've got the chief. It's like a shark, man. It feels like a shark just killing them all one by one. They're just bobbing oh, up oh and down. God. And, uh, McMurphy pulls out a stick of juicy fruit, hands it to the chief, and Chief Bromden says, it's one of the great moments in a movie. A hundred percent, dude. A hundred percent. There are such great reveals in this film. The fact that they're all there voluntarily was a great reveal. And then a few minutes later, the chief being able to speak and understand everybody. It's just genius. I, I have such a strong memory of the first time I saw this at 12 or whatever years old in my parents' family room. And the moment he says, thank you, just going, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. And so in the book, uh, McMurphy and Chief Bromden are roommates. Mm. So they share a bedroom together. And there are a bunch of clues that McMurphy is kind of starting to figure it out before this happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way this happens in the book is that they end up talking all night in their room. It doesn't happen waiting to get electroshock treatment. Wow. It happens them talking all night in the room. This is but, better for the movie, right? I think so. I think it's, well, but we're in a very dramatic spot, first of all. Right, right. Good point. Yeah. And, and I love, I mean, Jack Nicholson plays it so perfectly with his reaction. And then I love that he takes out a second piece, hands it to him, and is watching him. You're like, yeah. did I really hear that? And he takes it <laughs> and he says, You hear me too? <laughs> uh, so good. Christ. <laughs> you fooled him, Chief. You fooled him. You fooled them all. But this, again, this there's so much symbolism here because, you know, he's the only Native American character in the movie. And certainly in the 1970s with the AIM movement and other movements and Native Americans fighting back against the uh, against the establishment, uh, against the white power establishment in this country in the 1970s. And people overlooking Native Americans, right? Dismissing them and feeling like, you know, that and Native Americans adopting to the being playing the deaf and dumb type of situation in order to not get involved, in order not to get abused. And certainly now we see there's much more of a focus on uh, how uh, indigenous uh, women are treated in terms of the fact that their murders and their deaths are ignored by so many police departments across the country. 
Um, and so we see how this is a community that's constantly been overlooked or not factored into or felt that playing deaf or dumb to not be involved in all the shit uh, is just a better route so as not to get the abuse heaped on them. Because if they make themselves known, make their presence known, they incur the wrath and almost centuries-old wrath of a country that took land away from them and purposely put them on reservations to keep watch over them. So it's just that kind of thing you see here with Chief working through as maybe symbolic of that. You know, I'm not saying Foreman did it that way or Casey wrote it that way, but it certainly feels symbolic of that when you take the context of the 1970s and when this film was made. You are 100% right. And Casey did write it this way. In (laughs) fact, the story, so I'll give you a little bit of the backstory as best I can remember from the book is, so he grew up, uh, Bromden grew up, uh, his father was the chief and, Mm -hmm. and kind of was in charge of this community and was a big, huge, powerful man. And the state wanted his land in order to build a ban a a dam because they were going to flood the land i don't remember and this is in the book this is in the book this is in the book um and that one day when he's 10 or 11 some white folks come to go talk to his dad to get the rights to this land of course and he's there and they're going where can we find chief bromden which is you know our chief's father and he at 10 or 11 goes up to them and says oh my dad's over there and this is the and they and they literally behave as if they can't even hear him because they're just talking to each other and they're just not interested in him. And this experience of people not seeing him or not hearing him, he grows into this big, huge guy who plays high school football and high school basketball and is kind of a star. And yet, even though he's this big, huge guy, he continues to have these experiences where it's like people can't see him or can't hear him. And so the, and, and so more and more, he just started to behave the way he, they expected him to behave which was deaf and dumb. And this is the process of him shrinking, of him becoming a smaller and smaller person that nobody can see or hear and has no response to them. And that's how wow. he, and, and he served in the military, I think in World War II, or maybe it's in Korea, you know, and, and continually just ignored and ignored and ignored until he becomes this very small, in his mind, person wow. who can neither hear nor speak. Which makes sense when he says what he says to Murphy near the end of the movie, yeah. And this is when Murphy says, and it's funny that he's bonded with Chief, which, which is more clear in the book. But he's like, let's get out of here. Canada. We'll be there before these son of a bitches know what hit him. As they're talking about this, they wheel out Cheswick on a gurney, kind of yeah. mumbling and drooling. And then they call Dennis McMurphy's turn. And again, Jack Nicholson's, the way he plays this, which still having the bravado, yeah. And seeing the cracks and the real fear underneath the bravado, but he doesn't know, he knows he can't show any of that or believes right. he can't show any of that. Right. And he like he gives the chief the thumbs up and the smile. And then we walk into this other room and it is so scary. Yeah. And again, all of these people in this room are all doctors and nurses in the hospital. They've done electroshock. They are the ones who do it. And so they're just doing what they do. Wow. By the way, he has no idea this is going to happen, does he? Like he thinks like he's got one over on them or they're going to give him some kind of berating. And even while he's being strapped down, he seems to not want to understand or not really grasp what's happening. This is what's so tragic about this scene in Jack Nicholson's face. He seems to, Rick Murphy's face, he seems to not understand what's about to happen. It's funny. I interpret it totally differently, which is I think he totally knows what's going to happen. And he's trying to pretend like Like he doesn't care. 
like he doesn't care. <laughs> Interesting. And, okay. and it's funny because he's he's making these jokes as they're kind of lowering him down and putting yeah. on the you know the conductive gel and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and you could see the 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 alternating between bluster and fear. Okay, this won't hurt, and it'll be over in just a moment. Uh huh. What's that? Conductor. Little dabble, do you? And I'll tell you, having had multiple kind of surgery doctory things. Yeah. I get a lot funnier when <laughs> I'm in those situations. Going? Oh yeah, I become yeah. talkative. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, part of it is I'm a very curious person, so I'm asking questions about well, what is that, and why are you doing that, and where's that, you know. But I think part of it that's just my way of dealing with fear and not showing fear. You know. Yeah, I, I have that too. I, I'll be honest with you. Like, you know, I normally try to make fun of stuff anyway, but like, yeah, certainly in those moments, like I remember the first colonoscopy, I was just like. You're going to use the whole tube, Doc? I said, <laughs> they put it in right to the, the Fletch thing. And even when they sure. were saying they were getting me under, I started singing Moon River as I passed out, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm yep. stupid like that. So, yeah, but yeah. Well, I mean, he, I mean, particularly, you know, the, the, there's the classic masculine, you shouldn't be showing fear thing. Right. Oh, 100%. 100%. And then how, how do you channel all the things that you're feeling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Open your mouth. What's that? This will keep you from biting your tongue. Now just bite down on it. That's right. Just bite down. Now bite down on it. Watching this happen, and I think Jack does a great job. Everyone does a great job. Oh, man. It's terrifying. Dude, it really is. It really is. You know, because like just the, the it's the, it's the aftershocks after the first shock that is fucking yep. terrifying. The initial shock is rough, but the the convulsing, you're just like, oh, fuck, man, is that what it's really like? Jesus Christ. Uh, I I was a long time ago, and I can't remember the details, but I remember hearing a podcast or a lecture or something on the origins of um, electroshock therapy. Mm. And it really was just like some weird idea that some guy just, hey, let's try this. You know, so much of so much of medicine is just trial and error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And they still do it. This still gets done sometimes. Yeah. We're back at a group session. I so remember watching this the first time because in comes McMurphy stumbling and drooling and everyone has this huge reaction to it. And then he looks at the chief and gives him a wink and you're like, oh, he's playing. He's playing. And then the big smile happens and he's the big gregarious outgoing person. (laughs) <laughs> How about it, you creep, you lunatic, mental defective? Let's hear it for Blue Goose Randall back in action. Nice shirt, Chesaroo. <laughs> Why does he do this? Oh, just to fuck with him. Uh, it's also, like you just said, a masculine thing, right? Let me play at, oh, I'm a vegetable, I'm a vegetable, and then, ah, oh, I got you, motherfuckers. Like, it's his way of establishing his strength all over again, right? That he could mess with their emotions, but he's all right in the end. And so it was just in a way of reclaiming his alpha status in the group. Yeah. I think it's, it's totally, no, that didn't bother me at all. It's right. It's also covering up because he had multiple shock treatments over the last week or something. And I think that's in more detail in the book. Um, and I think it was scary and horrible every, every fucking time mm-hmm. pretending that's not the case. Yeah. A hundred percent. You're right about that. They uh, was giving me 10,000 Watts a day, you know, and I'm hot to trot. Next woman takes me on is going to light up like a pinball machine and pay off in silver dollars. <laughs> said, making jokes, like you said, making jokes to yep. do with the reality. Yeah. Well, that's an amusing thought, Randall. Thank but you. when you came in, we were talking to Jim. 
he has a problem with his medication, and we'd like to get back to that. Oh, I don't, I don't mind at all, uh, Nurse Ratchet. I'm uh, gentle as a puppy dog. Because and... I think his intention is he wants to, to at least appear like he is acquiescing to the group. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's later at night. Nurse Ratchet's leaving. We cast catch our first glimpse of the night guy, and that is Scatman Crothers. Out of nowhere, Scatman Crothers in this movie, man. Is this so, before The Shining or after The Shining? It's before. Oh. Um, and, well, and what's funny is, is Jack got Scatman both of these jobs because they're buddies. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. I think there was, I, I'd have to go back and listen to our Shining episode <laughs> from years and years ago, but I think that Scatman was a replacement. I think someone else had that part first. And I, oh, in I, The Shining? In The Shining. I think oh, so. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, but I don't remember for sure. And I know that Kubrick put him, Scatman through hell, made him do like a hundred takes of one scene. Um, But apparently people were thrilled when Scatman showed up because Scatman showed up with his ukulele and he's singing songs and just a joyful, fun person to be around in this, you know, tar- dark, hard movie yeah. that he was great. And McMurphy gets on the phone and is obviously talking to one of the girls about getting there with some booze. And then he's later in the middle of the night, he starts waking people up. He wakes the chief up. Chief, I can't take it no more. I got to get out of here. I can't. I just can't. It's easier than you think, chief. For you, maybe. You're a lot bigger than me. Even though that's something that's throughout the whole book, I think just that one line does it for the movie yeah. you know what i mean and then he tells this story about his father my papa's real big he did like he pleased that's why everybody worked on him and this is the guy that was the chief when he was 10 was the leader of the community and he married a white woman who worked on him to use the chief's words oh wow he refused to sell the land and then the white world worked on him yeah and eventually forced him to sell the land. And then we get to where he says, the last time I see my father, he was blinding the cedars from drinking. And every time he put the bottle to his mouth, he don't suck out of it. It sucks out of him until he shrunk so wrinkled and yellow, even the dogs don't know him. I love the line. He didn't suck out of it. It sucks out of him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, the, the whole book, that's right out of the book. The yeah. book is so beautifully poetic, the way it's written. And then, I love this moment, too. He, McMurphy says, Killed him, huh? I'm not saying they killed him. They just worked on him. The way they worked on you. Hmm. What does worked on him mean? Just the, I think to me, it's the verbal browbeating. It's the... Um, instilling insecurity. It's the removal of power. It's the constantly making him feel lesser than so that he starts to diminish in size and in energy and in presence. And we see that, you know, and it's the same thing that we're experiencing as we're watching the movie, this idea that you cannot have somebody who is, um, you know, questioning the authority or going against the authority because they will slowly but surely use all their tactics and their power to bring you to heal. And that's what, in essence, I think he's saying that society broke him and that all these people worked on him um, emotionally and uh, mentally. By the way, in the book, the chief's word for this is for society. He calls it, I think the combine. 
Mm. And he's always talking about the combine. The combine's mm. doing this and the combine's doing that. Mm. Um, and here's the thing that I think about it is that yeah. I don't think there's always even a they that are working on you. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't a consciousness running a plan on you. And you know what works on you is you get that credit card bill and you're just a little more behind than you thought you were going to be at the yeah. end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or you have to, you, you, you suddenly got sick and you had to cu- take a couple of days off work and now you're a little bit more behind or you're just having to deal with just the life stuff. And, and, and that's, what's working on you. And it makes you feel small and it makes you feel like you don't have control. That's the combine. And I don't think there doesn't even need to be a nurse ratchet, you know? Right. Right. Like you could have the boss at work. Who's not, letting you do the thing you want to do or making things a little bit harder on you, but he's not doing it to get you. He's just thinks he's doing his job and you know what? He's getting worked on too. Yeah. He's getting worked on from above. Yep. Yeah. It always, the shit always rolls downhill. Yeah. Everyone's getting worked on for sure. And then they are, they're here. And there we have not only uh, candy from before, but we have Rosie too, two women. And now we have to negotiate with Scatman. And I love the negotiation. $20 $20 to get down on your knees and pray, wouldn't you, Turkle? No, it don't send me. It don't send me. It don't. Huh? Don't do nothing to me, no. Well, you know, there'll be more. Maybe bringing a couple of bottles with them. And, uh... They're going to be sharing more than just the bottles, ain't they? You know what I mean. Uh, yeah, sure. I know what you, you understand mean. What I mean. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Uh... Well, Scatman's one of those great joys, I think, of that era. Yeah, yeah. But don't ignore the fact that he's essentially pimping out his friend to have sex with Scatman Crothers. And as we see in the film, this is not something these two women were bargaining for in this situation. So he is kind of, once again, McMurphy getting what he wants at the expense of other people's uh, situations. Well, it also goes to this, you know, what, you know, we would call the Madonna whore Mm, idea, which is that you have the totally controlling domineering nurse ratchet on the one hand and you have these completely willing almost non-character women on the other hand and that's all of women and billy's mom yeah as an energy yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, she's on the nurse ratchet side you know and then mcmurphy starts blinking the lights we hear medication time and he starts waking everybody up and we see just this sort of flood of people coming towards the nurse's station where they'd normally get their medication. And now we're getting the booze is out and Scatman is, is starting to freak out about all this. Of course it's his job on the line. Like Murphy, what you trying to do? Get my ass really fine. Like, come on, get your what ass out of here. Come on. Shit. Party my ass. This ain't no nightclub. Man. This, is this is where, by the way, I told the McMurphy doesn't give a shit about. No, he doesn't. I know. No. So and he, there's no way this guy doesn't get fired. Oh yeah, you know which. Yeah, I think he comes to terms with by the end of the this whole situation. <laughs> I think he's trying to get whatever he can get at a certain point. Well, yeah, what exactly. happens next is the night supervisor shows up and they're all hiding. I like the Turkle is also hiding, and McMurphy has to force him to go out and talk to her. Yeah. Who she sees one of the girls, um, and at that point, you kind of know that you're going to get fired. Yeah, right. She opens but, the door with the girl. Yeah, but she goes away, and then we have a party. Hmm. How are you feeling watching this party happen? Dreadful. Dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. When I was in my 20s, I was enjoying it, watching them all like unwind a little bit and have drinks. In my older age now, I'm watching it just completely worried about what this is going to do. And 
what Nurse Ratchet is going to do to them once she gets into the ward and sees what happened. You know, I really have a perfect mix of dread and fun. Yeah, <laughs> like part of me is laughing because it is funny, and they're really yeah, having fun. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the you know, like pouring booze through like enema tubes, and you know, like yeah. giving the booze to the guy who's obviously had a lobotomy, and like, I mean, it's all bizarre and crazy, but it's they're having fun, and Billy is dancing with candy and smiling, and yeah. Cheswick is watching, and Billy's dancing even closer, and uh, and then he gets uh the Murphy gets the keys from Scatman who's passed out. Yeah. And he's starting to say his goodbyes because he's unlocked the door and it's time to go. You say goodbye to me, Mac? Sure, I'm gonna say goodbye to you, Charles. Hey, Mac. Mac? Yeah. Thank you, Mac. And then Billy's obviously upset. I'm I'm gonna 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 miss you very, 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 very much, Mac. And he wants him to go with him. And Billy doesn't think he can go and he's going to give him his address in Canada and all this stuff. But there's something else going on with Billy because he says, she, 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 she going with you. And we realize that Billy is thinking about candy Mm -hmm. and kind of goes, are you going to marry her? You know, is this, is she your girl? And man, both Brad Dorif and Jack are so good in the Mm -hmm. scene. You want a date with her? Jesus, I must be crazy to be in a lonely event like this. Date, huh? Well, it'll have to be a fast date, I'll tell you that. And Billy suddenly realizes he's talking about what Jack is really saying, or what Randall P. McMurphy is really saying, is, do you want to have sex with Candy right now, quickly, before we leave? Yeah. And now Billy starts to panic. And stutters, a lot of stutters. Not, not, not now. You busy right now, are you? You got something to do right now? You got something to do? Uh, no, 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 Good. No. Well, then don't talk to me about when no, you're no, ready. No, yeah, no. yeah. Oh, Mac, yeah. Ready and no, everything no, like that. No. Candy, come here a minute. And they grab him, grab Candy, and they open up one of the rooms, and they put Billy in a wheelchair, and yes, they force him into the room with Candy and close the door. Yeah. And then all, all the guys go up and push him around the door because they want to listen. He uh, hands Scanlon those dirty playing cards he has. Yeah. And he takes a big, huge swig of booze and he sits down in this chair and he smiles and the camera stays on him. It stays on him. And I kept writing as I was watching this shot. It's like kind of amazing shot I wrote. Yeah. And then, and then I wrote, is this Jack Nicholson's best performance? And then he has this, thought you see thoughts go through his head i don't want to move past this moment i want us to go back to this moment because it struck me watching the film this time around you're watching an actor organically process multiple emotions as he's staring out there and giving you enough of a um open reaction that you can interpret it a million different ways and as he's sitting there and he's a little drunk or he's a lot drunk He's just staring out there and his face is so serious. And you're wondering to yourself, is this an after result of the shocks? Is this him like the end of graduate at the end of the graduate? Oh, great. We, we got married and we're building against our parents. Oh shit. Now what? And is this him sitting there being like, Oh, now what? Now that I've done all this, where do I go next? What do I do next? Or 
will I be able to do what I say I'm going to do, which is to leave? So there's so much here in my mind that I'm interpreting. And of course, maybe you saw something else. Other people are going to see something else. But there's a lot going on in his mind there. Um, and we, we may even glimpse a little bit of his evil streak in there, too, with the way his face is so emotionless in certain sections of, sections of that scene. So I found it to be fascinating and very much connected it to the end of The Graduate. And it's just absolutely captivating. He has sort of an odd smile and then another thought and he seems content, maybe. And then he's sleepy and his eyes close. Yeah. It is, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And it is amazing. And actually, we got a question about this moment. So, oh, good. Um, in fact, we have two questions about this moment. The first Ooh. is from Anthony Pomus, uh, who is asking, is Randall McMurphy actually crazy before he gets to the psych ward or is he pushed into craziness after the shock treatment and then he writes there's this peculiar but beautiful moment late in the film after mcmurphy has been able to get his two girlfriends in through the ward's window yeah at the party he can leave if he wants but instead he sits in a chair and this strange darkness comes over him followed after a long pause by a sort of self-knowing smile so does he know that to be in this life anywhere is to be insane does he give up his right his life right there and then to ratchet to the hospital, to this whole sodden world? That's a great question. Yep. Cause he does fall asleep. Yep. Yeah. I don't, that's a great point. Cause that's the thing that I was just saying is like, I feel like he's not sure he can go through with it. And if, even if he does, what is there out there for him? At least here he has power at least here. He has a worthy foe and there's parameters for, from which he can rebel from. And there are rules he can rebel at. And there are things that he can do to push the boundaries and still feel somewhat safe. See, I don't think he's the ultimate rebel. I think he's a safe rebel in that he rebels within the confines of, some, of an, a system that takes care of him at the same time. And so he's not quite willing to risk it all. And in that moment, the fact that he falls asleep makes me 100% question the dedication he had to be this rebel uh, in this ward. Because in that moment, he doesn't go through with it. You know who goes through with it? The chief, a few minutes later. He legitimately breaks out. He legitimately yeah. takes advantage, whereas Jack blows it at the moment of, or McMurphy rather, blows it at the moment of truth by falling asleep because he doesn't really want to do it. Well, it's so hard for me to go. It's such an unknowable moment. It's we have a similar question from Paul Sevilla. Okay. Who writes, this is a great film. He said, one thing that's always haunted me about this film is near the end. R.P. Murphy had a chance to escape the institution, but decided to spend more time and party with his fellow inmates. Yeah. That decision doomed him in the end. Mm -hmm. Why did Murphy decide to stay rather than escape immediately? Here's so here's my thinking. At this moment. Okay. <laughs> you know, the next time I watch the film, I might think something differently. <laughs> I think, I think that McMurphy is basically a narcissist who cares most about himself and his own yes. pleasure. Yes. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about these other guys. I think he does genuinely care. I think he is happy that Billy is getting laid at this moment. Sure. I think he saw the romantic nature of Billy who talked about proposing to this girl that got shut down by his mom. He talks about, he had this moment where he saw Billy laughing and talking to Candy on the boat and then dancing with her. And I think, 
I think he has come to care about these people. And I also think that is, yes, it is. Is it about power for McMurphy? Yeah. But I don't think he's ever had these kinds of experiences in the army, on the work farm, in prison. I think different things happened with these very strange people. And there's something special about that to him. That's what I think. You're a much more positive person. And I respect that because that's actually a really good way to look at it too, in that he doesn't want to leave because for the first time ever, he's actually found a community. Yeah. And that he can be a part of. And although he may rebel against the person who's in charge of the community from time to time, there's still a comfort level in this community feeling of acceptance. And he feels he's getting the, as you said, the narcissist, he's getting that satisfied by the fact that people look up to him, call for him, respect him. And so that matters to him. And maybe in the end, that long look or the long uh, camera staying on his face, that long scene there is him realizing that at the end, which is what helps him to fall asleep. It's a sense of comfort. And so he can go back to, so he can go to sleep, you know, and understand the situation in that drunken state that he's in. The kind of logic that creeps in is this idea that maybe it's not so bad here, you know? Well, but the one other thing is, uh, I think, you know, Paul asks, why did he decide to stay? For me, I don't think he decided to stay. Mm. I think he fell asleep. I really? Think there's a tragic. Oh, yeah. I don't, I think <sighs> he was like, all right, just, you know, as soon as Billy's done, I got to get the hell out of here. I still have plenty of time to make it. And he falls asleep. I have, to disagree, with, I have to disagree with my colleague. I have to say that I think, <laughs> I think he, he got to a place where he either accepted the situation uh, and doesn't, and neither, and didn't want to admit it to himself or he, he did admit it to himself. Either way, you don't fall asleep when you're scared. You fall asleep, and you don't fall asleep when you want to do something. You fall asleep when you feel comfortable. Or, yeah, and that's usually, because it wasn't like he was up for three nights in a row or something like shit. Like, he was just there waiting for Billy to have sex. It literally was going to be 10 minutes, probably. And he could have, but he felt this sense of comfort. And the sense of comfort let him put his guard down, and putting his guard down is what let him fall asleep. That's what I think. It's perfectly possible. The one yeah, thing I, I do know either way, which is great, yeah. is the dread <laughs> is so fucking high. <laughs> it's a, and what's crazy about it is yeah. the dread is so fucking high. And yet watching it the first time, I could not have imagined how actually terrible what's about to happen is. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because then it's morning and we just see the complete wreck <laughs> they made at this hospital. And in comes the orderlies and in comes nurse ratchet and mcmurphy wakes up and sees her close the window and lock the screen right they find rosie and get rid of her and then they are trying to just gather everyone up and see if anyone's missing and of course when mcmurphy wakes up that window is open yeah. you know wow. it's like right next to him and finally they go looks like billy is the only one missing did billy bibbit leave the grounds of the hospital gentlemen and people start to giggle because they all know where Billy is. I want an answer to my question. Did he leave the grounds of the hospital? Um, and they start searching for Billy. And then we hear... It's Ratchet. Because the young nurse has the door open and they all go to look. And there is Billy in bed with Candy. Yeah. Um, and he comes out sort of stumbling and pulling his pants up. And they applaud as he kind of falls and they, there's laughter and... He says, um, I can explain everything. He doesn't stutter. Right. That's the fucking thing, man. Aren't you ashamed? No, I'm not. 
no stutter. Hmm. What do you think about that? I think he's he's obviously, you know, having sex can change a person for the first time. There's a strength in that. Also seeing the guys laugh for him as if they're cheering for him, that's probably the first time he's ever felt people behind him. And so there's a strength that comes in those two fleeting moments that you can glimpse the possibility of a of a Billy Bivet that could have a that could function in this world, possibly. I think the reaction I had when I first saw this movie is kind of what sticks with me because when I was 12 or whatever, mm. and I saw this moment, I went, it's like he's cured. Is that he's been on some level dominated by women his whole life and romantically drawn to women his whole life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now that he finally got to have sex and have a truly loving, tender, gentle moment where a woman showed physical love and care for him, yeah. he's okay. And that if he pursued this, he could, it's just what you said. He could be okay. Yeah. It's not. And as an older person, now I go like, look, you don't get magically cured from difficult things right. in just one moment. That's not how life works. Yeah. Right. But I still go paid in essence to be with him. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely true. But I still go, he could be okay. And then the mom stuff. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother's going to take this. I wrote down and I bolded it. Every once in a while I bold things in my notes to make sure that I don't miss them. Yeah. I wrote down, might be one of the cruelest things I've ever seen in film. Yeah. That's this is where I think she becomes overtly cruel. Agreed. It is. I think she is upset. I think she's upset at McMurphy. She's upset at mm -hmm. what happened to her well-controlled hospital. And she sees... You know, it's so funny. I don't know why this just popped into my brain, but the in Breakfast Club with Bender and the teacher is that yeah. he sees one. It's like Randall McMurphy is the Bender of this group. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what she is doing is she goes, "Not I'm going to take down Randall McMurphy." Right. She says, "I'm going to take down the weakest member and destroy them mm -hmm. in order to maintain control on some level." And as soon as she says, your mother, the stutter is back. Yeah. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t t t tell her, Miss Ratchet. I don't have to tell her. Your mother and I are old friends. You know that. And you cut to McMurphy and the rage on his face and watching this. Yeah. He can, Billy can now barely talk. <sighs> um, please, no, no. No, don't tell my mother. Don't you think you should have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? And now he's trying to get out of it, Billy is. No, no. I, 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 I didn't. You mean she dragged you in there by force? What's so weird about it is that what Nurse Ratchet has created is two scenarios. One... He dragged her in by force. Yeah. Two, she dragged him in by force. There's no scenario that she's putting forward that it could be okay that they just had sex. Right. What's so amazing watching this scene is every one of those patients, even Martini, even Cheswick, everyone knows what Nurse Ratchet is doing is wrong. Yeah. Right. Because maybe they've had their moments. Yeah. And she's used the knowledge and used the button against yeah. them. Everyone's got that button. Well, when someone knows that button, it's rough. 
Well, and because she know Billy can't take responsibility for this himself at this oh, moment, man. or is trying to get out of it. Everybody did. Everybody? Who did? You tell me who did. She forces him to turn on everybody else, including turn on McMurphy, and blame them. McMurphy. Which is a terrible thing to do to someone. Yep. Miss Ratchet. Please, please don't tell Mr. me. Mr. Warren. My mother, please. And he gets down on his knees and is begging and screaming and saying no. And then, man, he starts to punch himself. Yeah. Oh. Oh. I, yeah. I've been there um, where you punch yourself in anger at yourself and in shame or embarrassment or just utter inability to process what's happening to you emotionally in that moment. It, 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 it's been an impulse of mine for a very long time until maybe eight, 10 years ago, well, maybe even less, um, where I stopped doing that. But it's certainly a just a feeling of like, you can't control what's happening. And you have so many emotions running through you, rage, fear, shame, um, embarrassment, all of it. And you can't process it because you don't have the emotional vocabulary to process it. So almost in a way to kind of control it, you unleash, you hurt yourself. And I don't mean like other people, some people do it cutting and what have you. But like, I know for me, I would punch myself in the head sometimes in, in reaction to a frustration um, in certain moments, you know? So I understand what he's doing. It's just, it's hard to watch someone else do it when you're doing it. It doesn't feel like it's the wrong thing, but when you watch someone else doing it, it's really chill. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, she's weaponized guilt and shame yeah, against yeah. him. A hundred percent. And she's, so all of the faults are internally in Billy. Mm-hmm. And so his only way to combat the terrible things inside him, which by the way, aren't fucking terrible. Right. right. And he's just a normal horny kid, you know, who has, yeah. it's, it, the only way to combat it is to hit himself because yeah. that's the villain. He's the villain of the whole story. Right. And he just fucking per- betrayed McMurphy who, right. who idolizes a father figure. So the mother figure of nurse ratchet by summoning his actual mother forces him to betray his father figure, yep. you know? And now he's, it just, and they drag him away screaming and hitting himself. And I just, you know, I, I, I went like, we talk about the great villains mm-hmm. of film history. Yeah. And it's like there's people like Darth Vader or Heath Ledger's Joker, or Anton Chigurh, Hans in Die Hard, Hannibal Lecter. Compare what they do to what Nurse Ratchet does in this moment. Hmm. They're so, I mean, they kill a whole bunch more people. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, but. but the cruelty of this moment is so awful for me. But that's the truth of our society. We let people, we punish people more for the actual physical death of somebody. And I think we really drop the ball in how we punish people who turn people into the living dead. And I mean, people who sexually assault, sexually abuse, child sexual abuse, they, that kind of stuff can kill a person from the inside out. And I think we're way too lenient on that. And we don't understand, you know, like people who, trick people into losing all of their money. There's a destruction of the soul that comes with that for the people who lose their money. These people go off and go to jail for like six years and come out of it and still have most of that money. 
to use. Whereas the person who lost all their savings in some kind of Ponzi scheme or some scheme that they got taken advantage of um, has no restitution for the most part and is left with the feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment, especially older people, because it does happen to a lot of elderly, which is why they try to stop that kind of stuff. And for me, I think people who do that should get the death penalty. I think people who do that should go to jail for the rest of their lives in the most hardcore prison ever. I don't think you're going to stop you from doing that until you enact measures that are comparable to murder and punishments that are comparable to murder punishments is what I'm trying to say because people don't understand. And so what she, I agree, I agree with you. What she does here is in essence, kill him from the inside out. Yeah. And so what happens next is the next logical thing that would happen in his mind because he's already dead in his mind. I mean, I, I, not even to comment on the, you know, people ripping other people off Mm. the, 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 I think everybody walks around with some words in their head that someone particularly a parent said to them that you just never get past on some level. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And those people frequently don't even know the thing that they said was hurtful, you know, Right. right, right, right. they're not even aware of it, but we walk around with these scars forever. Oh yeah, of those no, of you're those right. words. You're you absolutely know. right. Yeah, McMurphy still has the keys, and he's trying to open up the window. And an orderly comes over, and what does McMurphy do? He punches the orderly. Matt Murphy, what the hell are you doing? Now, is anything he's doing right now make any damn sense at all? No, I think he's just, he's like caged animal trying to run. Yeah. Yeah, he, he just has to get the fuck out of there and he's going to do it any way he can. I like that Washington puts like a leather strap around his knuckles and says, Put down those keys and nobody gets hurt. And Murphy puts down the keys, but I don't think he puts them down in a way like he's going to surrender. No, no, no. Puts them on the windowsill. And the chief is right there with him. Yeah. And then right, and we think that we're going to have a fight. I, I don't think I had any, any thought of what was about to happen was about to happen when I first saw this movie. And the young nurse comes running in, covered in blood, and practically collapses onto Nurse Ratchet. She falls on Ratchet, yeah, from out of shock. Yeah. You know, yeah. And outside that window is Rosie, is or the girls, and they're yeah. saying, "Come on, Mac, let's go." Yeah. And he could go through right then. Nurse Ratchet and the crowd go to where the scream came from. Let me through. And as she pushes her way through the crowd, we get our first glimpse of Billy dead on the ground because he has slit his own throat. And then McMurphy looks in and sees what's happened. It is so shocking. Like my, my stomach is twisted just describing what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And then Nurse Ratchet says in that same Nurse Ratchet tone. Now calm down. The best thing we can do is go on with our daily routine. And this is where I see what Milos Forman is talking about. Right, this idea of what he grew up with, which is we've ta- this person has killed himself, or there's something really traumatic that has happened to this member of your society. The best thing you do is forget about it and keep moving on with your life. The best thing is that's what this power structure wants you to do. And what is McMurphy's reaction to her saying, "Let's go back to our routine"? Is he attacks her? All right, don't. <laughs> <laughs> chokes her pushes her up against the wall when he does this it makes me think of um 
what we talked about with uh, Tarantino and Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. His need to have his hands choking Diane Kruger, which I think is the stupidest thing in the world. Here we have Jack Nicholson doing this with Louise Fletcher, and we don't need to see his hands on her neck. We see her reaction as any actress worth their salt can play this situation and is believable as hell. And it's scary. Jack is scary. And I also think about Godfather part two when Pacino actually slaps Diane Keaton. And I wonder how much of Jack was actually choking her, especially when you've seen him like prep for the scenes with Shelley Duvall in the shining. And it's really scary what he's doing to prep for those scenes. Um, And Shelley does not look happy about it. So you just kind of look at this and you wonder how much of Jack was actually choking her versus how much was staged. But either way, it's horrific to see him banging her head against the door and then banging her head on the floor. Like, it's just scary as hell. It's funny. I thought about exactly those same moments Mm. uh, that you brought up. And what I don't have, I couldn't find anything of Louise Fletcher talking about this moment. It definitely looks rough. It doesn't, this, this does not look stagey. This looks like it hurt. Interesting. And there's some stories where actors will say, because I saw one quote from Diane Keaton saying, because he really hits her, is saying that it was great, that she asked him to do it and it was great. Mm. And I've seen other quotes, or I think you mentioned another one where that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Hoffman hit Meryl Streep, right? And Kramer versus Kramer in that scene. And so, yeah, it's just crazy. I don't know. Just crazy to me what people thought was okay. Anyway. I mean, it's, I, I don't have, I know that I would not teach my students to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also know that some of my favorite movies of all time have some of this shit in it. Right. You know what I mean? So I, I, that's kind of where I, I... But needless to say, he is brutally choking her. Uh, would uh, McMurphy have killed her in this moment? Oh, absolutely. Unchecked? Yes. Yeah. Me too. 100%. Yeah. They drag him off. Uh, we've kind of talked about this a bunch, but I'm going to read the question anyway. Another question from Anthony Pomas says, is nurse Mildred Ratched really trying to do what's best for the men in the psych ward, or is she engaged perhaps in a form of warfare that results in the suicide of Billy, and is Billy's death actually a sacrifice upon the societal guilt altar over which nurse Ratched presides as a sadistic priestess? This, again, what is the sadism here that she's doing? I really need to have this some of you who are listening, I want to hear where you think she's sadistic. Are there moments where she like uses something against certainly the moment of Billy? That's a terrible decision by her. But how many of you have said the wrong thing about a person's past and interaction with a friend or a family member and they flipped out and you used it on purpose? You know, that's a mistake. But sadism is a whole nother thing. And I don't think she's sadistic. I think she thinks there's a certain way to run this society that because of what she's studied and knows about these people in their files, she thinks she's doing the right thing. Whether she's right or not is a whole separate conversation, but she thinks she's doing the right thing. I don't think she's being sadistic, even after Billy kills himself. And she reacts to that. She's horrified by it. Oh, yeah. She ushers everybody out and she tells them all to go on with their society. Now, you can look at it and go, as I said, it's a, 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 you know, a society trying to control its populace and whatever. The other side of it is these are unstable people and you want to get them back into their routine as soon as possible or else they're going to flip out and go off the rails or things are going to – chaos is going to ensue, right? 
when you're dealing with children, that is a big deal is, is what I've read because I've never had a child. But what I've read is routine is very important for children to establish a sense of um, parameters in their lives. And so I think what she's doing in that moment is trying to get them to not think about it because she doesn't want all these people flipping out at the same time. But it can also be seen, obviously, as Milosh intended, which is society trying to control its people and ignore the horrors they are doing. So, uh, <sighs> <laughs> um, this movie really affected me, man. And this is why I was afraid of talking about this film with for doing for the show, even though I'm enjoying it. Is why I was afraid to talk about. It. Um, I think I agree with you. I don't think she's sadistic. Sadistic implies that she's getting pleasure out of other yes. people's pain. We don't see that in any moment that she's getting pleasure out of her. And I have a weird, I, I, I know it's funny. We've kind of been answering this question or struggling with this question the mm. whole time, mm. but I'm glad that we had Anthony Pomas ask it again yeah, thank because you. I want to frame it in a different way. If you say that nurse ratchet is a horrible sadistic villain who likes to destroy these men, then this movie is just about her. She's unique. Right. If you say, cause every hospital they went to that, that when they're, location scouting people said there's our nurse ratchet yep if we say that nurse ratchet is symbolic of institutions that break people down and use guilt and shame and all of these societal levers to control people and make us more uniform and less different and re reduce our freedom that's a scarier story i think so yeah i i think she's scarier when she's symbolic of yeah. A whole bunch of other stuff. And I don't think, although she sees Murphy as threatening his author her authority, it's not an equal match. She doesn't see him as a rival. She sees him as a nuisance that she has to deal with. People, too, I think people too often when they analyze this film, see them as equals. They're not equals in her mind. In Nurse Ratchet's mind, he is just a nuisance, another nuisance. He is not special. He is not somehow equal to her in power. He isn't in her mind, right? She has the entire hospital behind her. He yeah. has a bunch of unstable people in a ward. It's not the same thing. And so I think sometimes people default to thinking that somehow Jack was going to overcome her or McMurphy was going to over overcome her in some way. And that was never going to happen. Never. I think one of the mistakes that we make is you find a tool that works and you think that tool works for everything. Mm -hmm. Is right. that... Nurse Ratchet is part of this institution, and this is how this institution works. Yeah. And it seems like part of the strategy is we have to break these men down yeah, before yeah, yeah. we can build them back up. Right. And it's funny because my son goes to a very progressive school, and it is very much the philosophy is kids need love and support in order to thrive. Mm -hmm. And so if there's something wrong, that means they're not getting one of their needs met and we have to find what that need is and we have to meet that need. And oh, there's a lot of love and affection and positive reinforcement, all that stuff. And those are good tools. I know from my son, they are not always the most useful tools. And my son needs more discipline and structure and negative consequences and things like that. In addition to the positive reinforcement. Yeah. And it's like, man, if they had let them, it's like, that boat trip was really good for him. That basketball game was good for them. I think that her toolbox isn't really always working is the problem. Yeah. No, that's it's fair. Not, it's not that everything in her toolbox is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just that's all she's got. Yep, 100%. So it's some amount of time later, we see Nurse Ratchet in a big neck brace. 
And everyone's speculating about McMurphy. And some people even think that he beat up some attendants and escaped. Yeah. There's rumors going around. And then it's the middle of the night and the chief is in bed and he hears something. And then we see a figure and there are two guys helping McMurphy into the room. And he looks a lot like he looked when he was playing that joke. Yeah. And so maybe he's just having fun. And they lie him down on the bed. I knew you wouldn't leave without me. I was waiting for now we can make it, Mac. I feel big as a damn mountain. So he's become himself again. Yeah, yeah, he's found his strength again. Yeah. Somehow this process, and if McMurphy had not come along, he I don't think he ever would have. Right, yeah, probably not. And then he sees something, and he turns McMurphy's head, and we see those two scars because he's been lobotomized. Yep. And there's just this dead, empty, blank, stupid look on McMurphy's face. Yeah. And he lifts him up and he shakes him a little bit and he hugs him and says, I'm gone without you, man. I wouldn't leave you this way. You're coming with me. And he lowers him down on the bed. And then the chief takes a long look at him and we hear that music rising. Ah, great Native American music, music right? Uh, ex- yeah. cue here. It's just so good. And again, the, the composer is Jack Nietzsche. And I, what I think I didn't rem- mention is that I said that Michael Douglas got him because a friend recommended him, but I don't think I mentioned that the friend was Art Garfunkel. This is- oh, wow. Yeah. And he says, Bo Goldman, the screenwriter, thinks that let's go before the chief kills Randall P. McMurphy is the best line he's ever written. Wow. And I get it. Yeah. Because what do you say in the moment before you kill the man? Mm-hmm. He goes, let's go. Because I think McMurphy, the spirit of McMurphy is going with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not staying in this place. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I remember watching as a kid, like the realization, like, oh my God, the chief is about to kill McMurphy. Yeah. Who, but, and by the way, as a kid, I had none of the feelings that we've discussed about how he's an agent of chaos and maybe not such a good guy. But I was a kid. I thought McMurphy was awesome. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And he pulls the pillow off and we see the just, dead face and chief problem strides into the tub room he goes to the hydrotherapy console he reaches down it's it, and i wrote i literally as i'm writing this down i wrote it's so amazing and then i wrote it's so fucking powerful and the music is building and the water shoots out like a baptism yep and he lifts this thing up And it's just so, it's heroic in this totally bizarre way as he strides through the room and everyone else is waking up and seeing what's happening. Of course, they were there in the room when McMurphy failed to lift this thing up. And the chief picks this thing up over his head and he smashes it through the window. And Tabor starts laughing and screams and Martini wakes up. And he climbs out. And that last look, by the way, from Christopher Lloyd is uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then we see the chief go off into the distance, into the mountains, and he disappears. And that is the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I don't know. It's one of those endings that's so powerful, and I don't know what I'm feeling. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this? I, I, you know, the, my, the, the main character of the movie was lobotomized and then his friend killed him and his friends escaped. And I don't know. It's, it's such a profound movie. Well, like um, you were saying earlier, 
when you rebel in a society like this, it's just, it's almost like machine gun rebelling. You're just going to do anything. And so there's no logic. There's no norm. And in this situation, the fact that they took away his individuality by lobotomizing him means he is no longer who he is anymore. And a free spirit like that would not want to stay alive just to be in essence, you know, not who they are brain dead in essence. Um, and yes, I know lobotomy is not brain death, but in essence, you've killed his spirit. You killed his essence. So him killing him is an act of mercy Yes, in a situation like this. And then him picking up that thing is his, a way of honoring McMurphy because of McMurphy saying, what did he say to the guys when he walked out? At least I tried. Yep. And this is chief trying by ripping this thing out. And you could argue his ripping out a very strong part of that patriarch, or I'm sorry, not patriarch, but this society and throwing it through the window, smashing the window, creating a way to escape and everybody reacting to it shows that there's such power in this moment um, because he said he wasn't going to let him down and he didn't by breaking out of there. And he, and his spirit goes with him. McMurphy's spirit goes with him wherever he goes as a, like a lesson or as a way to maybe understand people when they're like this or whatever, you know, be more understanding. So there's so much that comes with this ending that I think is fantastic. And as you said, powerful for sure. Their first cut was well over three hours. <laughs> Their second cut was two hours and 25 minutes, which they felt was just still way too long. And then they did, and this I do this too, is that, you're, I mean, your first cut's always really long, and then you're cutting it down and cutting it down, and then you do what I always call the crazy cut, which is you cut it down as far as you possibly can. So they cut down another 30 minutes out of or 40 minutes out of it, mm. got it down to like 145, and went, okay, they watched it, and the 145 version felt way longer than the two hours and 25 minute version. And it's because they didn't give you enough time to really get to know the characters. Yeah. And so the movie felt slow. So then they put 15 minutes back in and then that's when it really starts to work. Yeah. And, and they had their first screening up in Berkeley and that's when they knew they were onto something. It's a quick story that I thought was really interesting was there was a kid who was a patient at the hospital and who I picture looking like Billy and that they, had him be Saul Zant's assistant and he's helping out on the movie. And about halfway through the shoot, he comes up to Saul Zant and Michael uh, Douglas and says, I just found out that you treat everybody the same. It's like, if, if someone does something wrong, you tell them, you tell them they did something wrong. And if you do the same thing, if they did something right, and it doesn't matter who you are, like you treat everybody else exactly that way. And Saul and Michael burst into tears at being told that. Because and I get I totally get it. Yeah. And he and they and then this kid said that he just never experienced being treated that way. And they go, look, we're going to come back to this hospital when we finish the movie and we'll, we'll screen it and you can watch it then and see what your good work did. And they came back and that kid was gone because right after the movie left, he checked himself out because he felt better. Oh, wow. Like the move working on the movie really helped him. That's incredible. It was released on November 19th, 1975. It was the second highest grossing film of 1975, the seventh highest grossing movie of all time. And you know what? You do pretty good. You do pretty well doing number two in 1975 because number one was a little movie called Jaws. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you remember how I said that uh, Jack Nicholson took a cut in pay and a bigger cut of the movie? Yeah. yeah. His 
percentage of this film was $16 million. Wow. That's how much he made. So he did the same thing with Batman. And he yep. yep. Kirk Batman. Douglas made more money on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest than he worked on any other movie he had ever acted in. Wow. Yeah. It was nominated for Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor for Brad Reef, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematographer, Editor, and Score. Jack Nicholson was up against Walter Matthau for The Sunshine Boys, Al Pacino for Dog Day Afternoon, Maximilian Schell for The Man in the Glass Booth, a movie I've never seen, and James Whitnor for Give Him Hell, Harry, which I've also never seen. Uh, but Jack Nicholson won. Uh, Brad Dreef lost supporting actor to George Burns for The Sunshine Boys. Yep. Uh, Louise Fletcher won Best Actress, beating uh, Isabella Johnny, but for the story of Adele H. and Margaret for Tommy. I can't believe she's nominated. That's a very strange movie. <laughs> Glenda Jackson for Hedda Gabler and Carol Kane for Hester Street. I did not know Carol Kane had uh, had an Oscar nomination. Mm -hmm. um, cinematography went to Barry Lyndon. Uh, it won for directing against Stanley Kubrick for Barry Lyndon, Sidney Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon, and, and uh, Robert Altman for Nashville. Editing and music, of course, went to Jaws. Um, and this is one of only three films to sweep the big categories of director, picture, actor, actress. The other two being It Happened One Night and Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Um, we have one more question that I'm going to read but can't really answer. <laughs> this is from uh, Kimberly Rogers, who I've known for a long time. Uh, she says, for Steve, the research machine, what was the power or not on closing the big psych warehouses in the 80s and 90s? Did any politician cite the movie or the mood of the movie were these psych hospitals rightly or unfairly demonized by the 70s movies? And has that led to more people on the streets that may have actually benefited from being housed in treatment facilities? Kimberly, I tried to do some research on this and I couldn't find an answer. But I do definitely think this movie shaped the way we saw uh, institutions like this. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. I think the same thing happened with prisons during the 70s and some of those films, Rue Baker and other ones that mm. kind of exposed the corruption that was going on in these prisons and the documentaries that came out of that as well. So, yeah. All right. So, John, we've gotten there. We've reached this moment where now we have to sum up. Yeah. our feelings about one flew over the cuckoo's nest what do you think i gotta say man uh, you know as i've said a number of times in the first in these two parts i was really hesitant in our in our own personal conversations off mic i was really hesitant about walking back into this movie for fear of the emotional damage it was going to leave within me for fear that because of the mental health struggles i've been through how it was going to devastate me or affect me or maybe send, send me tumbling back down for a day into those dark places and it actually did quite the opposite. It re-inspired my love of movies. It re-inspired my love of films from the 1970s and really got me to enjoy Jack Nicholson again as an actor, respect Louise Fletcher and the work she did in this character, and reappraise these characters in a way that I didn't when I was younger. And I know I've said this ad nauseum on this show multiple times, but the great films are the ones you can revisit every decade that you get older and find something completely different to get out of them. And I think that speaks volumes about this film. Milos Forman doing a wonderful job directing this thing, a great cast coming together, feeling the actual visceral vibe of this ward uh, through every performance here and finding yet again, a new appreciation for the character of chief and what he brought to this um, uh, ensemble and what he brought to this film as well. But overall, just kind of a different approach to um, looking at heroes and villains and the gray areas that they exist in, especially in the in the best films of the 1970s, like this one is. 
I am struggling, John. I'm really struggling on how to sum up a movie that's very difficult to sum up. And I think we've we've said this from the beginning of the Cinephiles, that movies are different at different times that you come to them in your life. I don't think there's any movie that I felt more strongly that way than this movie. Mm. I was wrecked, absolutely destroyed the first time I saw it. Yeah. When I watched it four or five years ago, I was struck by how much fun it is when it's fun. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And and then watching it this time, and and a lot of this came out of the conversations with you, is I was really struck by, you know, I had a, I thought McMurphy was a hero as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm really struck by the ambiguity of McMurphy. And while I don't go, Nurse Ratchet is awesome. I want to hang out with her. She's like, hero, I'm not feeling that. Right. But I am definitely feeling that there is a lot more going on. And I also think this was a movie that was created in a time where we had stronger feelings about traditional masculinity and it was coming right after the 60s and this is so a part of the 60s where it's about rebelling against the establishment and now we're in this place where politically and in all sorts of other ways those things have flipped around in lots of ways yeah and so where we fit in all this stuff i'm struggling to come up with and here's here's kind of where i'm landing which is i really really do believe in the individual's freedom and that that freedom can be weird, mm-hmm. you know, and challenging and difficult. And it's not, you know, we're not supposed to be just spoon fed everything that's nice and clean and simple. Right. But that things can be uncomfortable and that's still okay. Yeah. And on the other hand, I can simultaneously, and this came out of the conversation with you, yeah. be real worried about what happens when the lunatics take control of the institution. Yeah. You know, because we've seen the lunatics take control of certain institutions. Yes. And I can point to, I'm not pointing at one side of the political divide. I think there's some lunatics on both sides and I can worry about that too. And, and in the end though, I can still be completely devastated, moved, made to laugh, made to think by this incredible, incredible film with incredible performances top to bottom. Yeah. So that's what we think of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'd love to hear what all of you think. Just visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can also follow us on Cine underscore Files, The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, all of those places. Your reviews on Apple Podcasts still matter. We still love reading your comments on YouTube, and we'd still love you to buy or stream One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest through cinephiles.net along with every other movie we ever reviewed and if you want to join us on patreon you're seeing how many new things we're doing we're doing monthly watch alongs more q a's we're trying to bring more of your direct questions into our longer episodes like we have in this and of course we always have our cinephile shorts so visit us on patreon.com slash the cinephiles and for me sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and tomorrow we are recording the last episode of the original series on enterprise incidents so if you're a star trek fan definitely check that out john how would people find you uh, you can always find me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch um where else oh yeah my uh, youtube youtube.com slash john roca says that's my channel that's out there for people to enjoy the outlaw nation and it's heating up now at the end of the year because of all these films coming out so there's going to be a bunch of reviews a bunch of uh, content going on there as well and my other podcasts the uh, top 10 
uh, the Hot Mike, the Geek Buddies, uh, and Strong Style that are out there for you all to enjoy. So check all of those things out and make sure to come back next week for a brand new episode of The Cinephiles. <laughs>